have. I got a story for you. The body, or a cadaver, has never been found. DNA never discovered. The world only has hundreds of footprints and about 59 seconds of video footage as the strongest evidence of the world's most elusive biped's existence. Well, there's also today's guest's career and some pretty decent scientific explanations, but who would want to listen to that? Jokes, dear listener, jokes. Clearly you do. But first, a word from today's sponsor, Andre Psyche. AndrePsyche.com is gone. But Andre Psyche, the man, myth, legend, and your future friend on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is alive and thriving. You see, Andre has adopted a minimalistic lifestyle for materialistic things like websites, cars, his hair. However, his creative libido is fully stimulated and viewable on most social media platforms. Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others like you feel good. Search him up. It's Andre Psyche. P-S-Y-C-H-E, the next time you're looking to friend or follow someone outside of your social circle. We're also brought to you by Teeth, Omnivore's best friend. Tooth fairies pay premium prices for these pearly whites with good reason. Probably the same reason we developed into solid food-loving humans instead of getting by solely on breast milk. Because solids are satisfying. And unless you are a snake or have snake-like tendencies, these yummy morsels get into your belly because of your teeth. Feeling generous with your time? Do you have five seconds to spare? Do you want to spend $2 to support this podcast? It's monthly, by the way. Go, please, to our Patreon.com, search getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod, and become a subscriber. You don't have to pay to support. There are a couple free things you could do. It only costs your time. You can push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. You can friend or follow the pod on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can go to Apple and write a review or click five stars. Again, those cost nothing but your time. And finally, we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. If you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us. We get to know people from all around the world. The podcast is downloaded coast to coast on the continental United States and Alaska and Hawaii. So if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My 
on today's show, we are getting to know Jeff. Jeff, who probably that's an understatement without going with the doctor before it. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time to come on and letting everybody get to know you a little bit. I appreciate it. Sure. So I have to fight the urge. I came across you in the Sasquatch documentary on Hulu. Had had no idea how big of a deal you are. <laughs> I, I started Googling you and I'll, I'm blown away by the extensive research, not only like with Sasquatch stuff that you've done, but the other areas you're, you're clearly like a top 1%, one percenter of intellectual world on earth, right? Well, that's, that's, I wouldn't go so far. Two <laughs> percent, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Humble brag. Humble brag. Um, so I'm sure you've done it a bunch of times, but can you give listeners just like a little background on you, sure. who you are? Sure. I'm a professor of anatomy and anthropology from a professional perspective. I teach here. I've been here at Idaho State University for the past uh, 28 years now. And uh, before that, I was at Duke, or excuse me, first Northwestern Medical Center. I was there for several years uh, as a starting assistant professor. I was a visiting assistant professor for a number of years at Duke University, doing my postdoctoral work there. I took my doctorate at SUNY Stony Brook, you know, so I've been along the East Coast and the Midwest. I grew up in the uh, Intermountain West and Pacific Northwest, uh, born in Salt Lake, lived lived uh, Spokane, Boise, Portland, Eugene, you know, all over the, the Northwest and Intermountain West. That's what I really consider home. Um, now here in Pocatello in southeastern uh, Idaho, uh, in the heart of the Rockies, we're just a stone's throw from Yellowstone and the Tetons and and um, all the all the other beautiful uh, uh, scenic wonders that uh, that uh, grace this part of the country. I <clears throat> teach human gross anatomy. That's my bread and butter uh, at the graduate level, uh, full body dissection course for the health professions programs that we we have here at Idaho State. And uh, my research focuses on the evolution of human bipedalism, most specifically. Very, you know, broadly, I'm a functional morphologist. I I study not just anatomy for its the purposes of identification, but to understand what has shaped that anatomy, how we are adapted as a species, and and in comparison to other, particularly the primates, uh, you know, as as uh, analogs or comparisons and contrasts. Um, that research is particularly focused on the evolution of bipedalism, and uh, and it was that that created the nexus for my interest in Sasquatch, another possible bipedal primate out there. That that's sort of the foremost. Uh, that's where I come at. I mean, of course, there are all sorts of inherent, interesting, uh, mystique and and sensation associated with uh, with this very mysterious and intriguing topic but from a scientific point of view that's that's where i approach it is is and, the interest uh, just because he's so freaking big <laughs> well i mean well, that that's that's one dimension one one quality that, that is is fascinating i mean uh, uh you're you're right anytime you look at large animals 
they exhibit a, a suite of very distinctive uh, adaptations uh, that have shaped that morphology, that, that anatomy, uh, into the dimensions that we see. It's, it's true. I was just talking this morning. I was down at, at uh, the grand opening of a new credit union here in Pocatello, and they chose as their theme Bigfoot, <laughs> of all things, and invited me down to kind of man a table and, and uh, be the sideshow, I guess. But we were just discussing this. You know, I, I if you've ever been in the wild and seen a bull moose step out of the trees, say, into the pasture or meadow, um, you know, it's like something that has just stepped out of the ice age. They are so massive, so imposing. They're just these, they're huge. And I can imagine, although I haven't had the privilege of seeing Sasquatch really in that, you know, I may have caught a glimpse here or there, but uh, I think that would be a similar sensation of uh, witnessing this this towering behemoth, uh, which I think does represent, just as the moose does in a way, the, the legacy of that Pleistocene megafauna. Um, I think that's, that's the key to their adaptation is... Uh, you know, inhabiting the northern latitudes and during uh, temperate in, in temperate climates that have occasionally fluctuated into glacial periods where there were uh, where where a large body size would be a tremendous advantage. Can I, so I have two. My daughter made me promise I would ask. She we went into Staples and she saw a life size cutout of Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, yeah. and in her mind, she, that that's like her relative marker. Yeah. In your estimation, yeah. in your estimation, Sasquatch, yeah. way bigger. She's like, Daddy, is he like oh, three yeah. feet? Like, how much bigger are we talking? Well, you know, uh, uh, the average Sasquatch footprint is about 16, 16 and a half inches in length. The biggest credible one that I've seen is 19 inches. Uh, I don't think they get much bigger than that. Uh, but that would correlate. So let's let's take the se a 17 inch. Um, that would correlate to a creature eight and a half feet tall. And if you were to estimate, you know, it, it, I'm not great at estimating weights visually, but I actually did an exercise where I took uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film subject and using the established scale of her foot at 14 and a half to 15 inches thereabouts, um, you could estimate the proportions Having estimated the proportions, and she probably stood just shy of or just over seven feet in height. But then using those dimensions and, and, and actually modeling her body as a series of, of cylinders um, and estimating her volume, then it's, it's a straightforward process to uh, convert volume into density of tissue. And, and weight per cubic okay. unit of volume. And, uh, you know, she comes out seven or 800 pounds. Gosh. So, and that's just shy of, of seven feet. You imagine a, a, a Sasquatch with a 16 inch foot that stands eight and a half feet. I mean, we're talking in excess of a thousand pounds easily. I mean, on the order of this big moose that walked out, yeah. you know, that I was describing. <laughs> and, uh, so these are big animals. They, they, uh, and, and, and they exhibit the adaptations that one would need in terms of locomotion, in terms of 
a presumed diet, the generalized omnivorous diet, in the massive chewing structures that would allow them to process. You know, in the in the capacious torso, they don't have the real prominent gut uh, pot belly that we uh, think of when we think of, a, say, a gorilla that's, uh, that's exactly. a largely vegetarian. But part of that is is an optical illusion because the uh, the gorilla's pelvis is very flat in a front to back orientation. You know, the the iliac blades are very uh, uh, vertical and 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 broad laterally, but the Sasquatch pelvis probably more closely resembles our own, where it's more bowl shaped, and so the uh, the the arrangement of the pelvis of the gorilla emphasizes that protuberance of the lower gut whereas on sasquatch i mean she, she's built like a tank just straight up and down as deep from front to back as she is from side to side which is immense and so i think there is still room for a very capacious gut with you know slow uh, passage time and as with many primates the ability to detoxify and digest digest and detoxify secondary compounds in plant products and so a much coarser diet certainly certainly they're not in direct competition with bears because they would be able to because of their legacy from a great ape or or a hominin they probably have the capacity to to masticate and digest foods that would be unavailable to a bear what foods uh, would those you know, be Excuse me? What foods would those be that are unavailable? Well, things like, I mean, just for example, off the top of my head, um, uh, one witness told me uh, that the he was Native American from the Pacific Northwest and said, oh, they, they eat alder leaves. Alder leaves are, are very common along, along river uh, riverways and streams. Um, if you can eat alder leaves, there's a perennial uh, salad bar out there for you. A, a bear cannot eat. They can eat them. They can't digest alder leaves. You know, so I think those kinds of things we we talk about um, uh, in in previous discussions uh, a, a possible fallback food, especially in the winter time, would be tree lichens. Uh, even Native Americans use this black tree lichen. Uh, uh, um, what is it now? I just went blank. Uh, as, uh, I'm not going to be able to help you at all. Yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway, it's all right. <laughs> Just went totally blank on the generic designation, but uh, but in any case, the, these are uh, the Native Americans would harvest them. Sometimes, if, if a tree was heavily laden, they would actually fell the tree, harvest the lichen, they bundle it up into bundles and steam it, and it congeals down like uh, tofu. They wow. dry it, and then they can slice it up. They can reconstitute it for thickenings and soups. They can add fruit to it and make a. Uh, uh, a sweet porridge out of it, you know. It's a, it's not a preferred item, but it's there, and it's a tremendous carbohydrate. Um, obviously, Sasquatch is not steaming; it's not cooking. Yeah, it, I was just wondering, but, like it's just grabbing and going, like right, exactly. Or off a tree. I mean, it's like eating a Brillo pad, right. but but they're able to chew it up and digest it, and How? and uh, take full advantage of that resource. So, seven hundred to eight hundred pounds. I, yeah. I, I, my mind's just going in a million directions, but I'm wondering, yeah. like. How much caloric intake do you need to sustain life? And then biped-wise, with those kind of hips, that is that proportionally – I'm trying to think of a 600 or 500-pound person, their yeah. body and bone structure just dealing with the weight and remaining mobile. Yeah. 
I can't wrap my well, head around that. So I, I don't know which you'd like to speak about or what's more interesting. Well, sure. Well, sure. I, I don't certainly, I, I have a slide in one of my presentations prepared where I have the uh, various estimates of caloric intake of different animals that are out there. And what, what you find is that, that Sasquatch fits within other animals of similar dimensions. Uh, I mean, and, and who are capable I mean, it's purely obviously supposition, but but obviously it takes a certain amount of calories to sustain a certain amount of mass of just about any animal, uh, and if you restrict yourself to mammals. But the point is, these animals are out there, and they're able to find and ingest those calories. They they can make a living, so there's no reason really Sasquatch couldn't as well. Because you kind of prove that with just like the availability. Um, going back right. to the tree, you're like, hey, this tree gives you this many calories. There are right. this many trees in the area, so mathematically, sure. it's possible. It's not like you're sure. finding receipts or like Sasquatch no, no, no. Claw, paw prints. Exactly. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. No, that's that's one way you could go about it, or just look at other animals that are already there in the habitat and and uh, come to an uh, an understanding of what their caloric needs are, and de facto the fact that they exist. And are there in the environment? Then, then makes it clear that those calories are available. Oh, yeah. um, a good friend of mine and colleague, uh, John Mianzinski, is a uh, wildlife biologist and ethnobotanist, and he's done some fantastic work. I've I've been uh, uh, prodding him to get it written up so we can get it published. But where he has <laughs> looked at uh, at all of the foods that black bears and grizzly bears eat, what what is available out there? How do they get their calories? And then Comparing to the types of foods, at least the food groups that other uh, great apes are capable of eating in their habitat. Obviously, the plant species differ, but you can consider the potential analogs uh, in, in the flora of a temperate forest. And and he's you know the laundry list just goes on and on and on. There's there's much more to eat than most people yeah. give credit. Right. And uh, you know, it's attested to by the fact that there were Native American populations on this continent eating, uh, sustaining themselves from what was available on the land. Uh, uh, and, and obviously cooking helps make more foods available to, to our uh, grossly simplified digestive systems. But So then you also asked about the locomotion, getting about. You're right. We can't consider this creature just a, an enlargement of a human, because as you point out, uh, people who become obesely overweight or who are very gigantic in their proportions often suffer consequences on the you know the mechanical strain on the body. Right. They they their arches collapse, their knees become too valgus, they become knock kneed, their joints become uh, degraded. And uh, and oftentimes, you know, they're they're quite debilitated. They they have trouble walking. Yeah, it's painful. So it's just painful. So presumably, Sasquatch is adapted to uh, just like other large mammals. They they've uh, adapted in ways in which they're able to uh, support the, those kinds of massive volumes. They would it be um, denser bones? Probably denser and and more robust. You know, in greater widths okay. to lengths. You know, it's just like if you take a, a mouse skeleton uh, and you draw it to the same scale of an elephant, not absolute scale, but just, you know, you scale them up so they're both the, the same 
height, say. Mm -hmm. this, the mouse skeleton looks a, a particular way, which works when it's in, on its tiny scale. But you don't see an elephant with the features of a mouse skeleton. Instead, their limbs are not flexed. You know, their limbs are straight like columns because bone withstands compressive forces much more readily. Their bones are extremely robust. That makes sense. You know, the width to length ratios are extremely increased and denser. The cortical bone the, uh, that forms the shaft is much, much thicker than would be found in, in, in uh, not, not only in absolute terms, but in relative terms to their size. Okay. And uh, so Sasquatch probably reflects some of those same kinds of uh, distinctions. Now, is there a preferred, can you base on like geographical sightings, a preferred diet? So in my mind, what I'm thinking is if you, can, if you have this wider range, you're probably going to have preferences like, wow, I really like this type of food. So I'm going to yeah. habitat, my habitat's going to be nearer to my food source. I don't know if that's flawed thinking, but I'm wondering if you have a theory about preferred diet. Well, it, it may, uh, uh, I mean, I'm, every animal I'm sure has uh, a sweet tooth. You know? <laughs> and so when, when you, when you talk about preferred diet, there may be certain foods that the particular animals uh, like or individuals like better than they, than, than, uh, they might others, but I think it's more driven by availability. Okay. You know, they, they, they have that goal. They need a certain number of calories and what is available and they'll take advantage of availability. So, you know, this is one thing in, in my field guide, for example, when we look at the scat produced by black bear, the appearance of the scat of an omnivore is not stereotypical. It's not, uh, it, it varies with the season and with the diet. So in the springtime, when they're eating lots and lots of greens, just just sprouting, their uh, their scat looks like manure. I mean, it looks like straw, hay. Uh, but when they get into some uh, high protein, they find a carcass, or they're preying on uh, on new uh, uh, deer fawns that are dropping. They uh, <clears throat> their scat reflects that. It's a darker, putrefied. Uh, scat due to the high protein content in the fall when they're eating lots of berries it looks like you know dutch cobbler there <laughs> it's just full, full of the seeds and and i mean it really looks different and uh so i think i think uh, uh you know preferred uh whenever there's an option to get more sugars and more fats uh, as opposed to the generic carbohydrates that are out there, starches, then um, they, if those resources are available, they'll take take advantage of it. Um, fungi, you know, uh, those are, are don't have a lot of calories, but they often have a lot of trace minerals. And so they're very desirable as an occasional food item. I remember one time camping and this big uh, fungus, big mushroom had, had sprouted back behind our camp. And one evening we stumbled on, it was a deer who was obviously very interested in this particular mushroom and, and our presence scared him away. But sure enough, we, I checked the next morning and that, that mushroom had been nibbled, nibbled down, down by that, presumably that same deer. So there was a preferred food item that was rare and, and wasn't encountered frequently and, and provided uh, tremendous benefits. So the animal made a very distinctive uh, or a concerted effort to get at it and, 
taken full advantage of it. So if I heard you correctly, you just said Sasquatch is into psychedelics. No, I'm just kidding. Could be. Could be. <laughs> Who knows? I wonder, like... Well, have you have you seen... There was, there was just another article where they were talking about how uh, uh, dolphins will go mm-hmm. up and, and poke the puffer fish, which whose skin will also exude this hallucinogenic toxin, yes. and they get high. <laughs> and, right? and they seem to do it intentionally <laughs> for the effect that they get from... Yeah. Well, so I wouldn't put it past. Uh, I mean, that is pretty common, right? I don't know if it's just with mammals, but like an altered state of being seems to be something that a lot of species seek, right? It could, it could be. It could be. I mean, I uh, whether it's uh, whether it's through uh, drugs or whether it's through meditation or prayer or whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to label it, you're right. We uh, uh, humans are, are prone to. Uh, seek out those those uh, particular mental states as well pardon me i know you're fine have you um come across any scat would you call it scat that you um believe to be sasquatchian scat i just want sure, to say that we did we we uh, there was one in particular comes to mind over in wyoming in the near big sandy in the lower end of the wind river range there was uh, an incident that involved several uh, cabin owners they had there was a little cluster of cabins uh, individually privately owned uh, on the, and something had come out of the woods and and was skulking about and peeking in windows and seeing what was going on and the footprints were found the next morning it's clear some of the best examples of, of good 16 inch tracks that i've ever seen there was a ranger that was identified or uh, notified excuse me who came out and investigated, documented it, uh, made his report. His supervisor got in touch with us, and we had an opportunity to investigate ourselves several days later. There was a scat. I mean, it was it was just poetic almost. You know, I <laughs> I always say, you know, to be certain. Well, if remember we talked about the variation in omnivore scat right. of bears. Uh, likewise, with Sasquatch, its appearance. Is, and consistency is going to vary with the diet and the season and so forth. And so, um, and, and, and as a result, uh, given some of the overlap in diet, the chances are their scat is going to have similar appearance. So misidentified bear scat is, is a common concern when uh, seeking examples of alleged Sasquatch scat. And so I've, I've always said, you know, the proverbial best sample is that which is found between two Bigfoot tracks. <laughs> and here we had an example of that. The tracks were just clear as could be, and there was the scat. And it had clearly squatted down and, and left the dump there. Well, we, uh, unfortunately, it was several days old. You, DNA analysis really has to be, you, you've got to stabilize that sample in ethanol within an eight hour window. Otherwise the bacterial action in the scat itself will destroy any uh, of the mucosal cells that slough off uh, in, with the scat. And so it was really kind of too late for that, but we went ahead and tried it. It was obvious by appearance that it was 100% well masticated sedges, you know, these grass-like uh, forbs. And uh, so, uh, you know, it could have been bear, it could have been Sasquatch. When we sent it in and had it analyzed, they did get a trace of DNA. Unfortunately, the DNA was that of a dog. 
And upon further inquiry, we learned that one of the cabin owners had a dog who that morning was very interested in the footprints. And when he saw the scat, he lifted his leg and urinated on it, marked his territories. <laughs> so they were just picking up traces of dog DNA. Dogs do not eat sedges. So it was not, the, the scat did not originate from a dog. So it was either bear or it was Sasquatch. Given the direct association with unmistakable footprints, I was quite confident that it was it was Sasquatch scat. Have you considered the theory that the dog happened to see Sasquatch and just pissed itself right there on the poop? <laughs> well, that's possible too. I mean, dogs, the reaction of dogs to Sasquatch is usually a fear reaction. I would think so. Um, I would. Yeah, I mean, they, they growl and bristle, but, uh, you know, there are all sorts of anecdotes where tracking dogs have refused to follow the scent of a Sasquatch and uh, and reports of tracking dogs having been dispatched. And whether they're credible or not, I can't vouch, but uh, they don't uh, necessarily seem to get along with one another, which isn't too surprising. Can you, so I have two questions about the, do, do you call it Sasquatch scat or do you call it defecation? Is there like an actual term for it? Scat, scat's the, the uh, accepted term, the usual term in, in, in tracking circles, okay. yeah. So scat proportionally, is there like a standard size that you would notice for bears that you could then say this amount was not proportionate to a typical bear of the area, therefore we're going to associate it as like almost like a yeah. second step of verification? It's, it's kind of a, uh, a, a imprecise, <laughs> um, uh, not, I don't want to say science even, because uh, I mean, obviously diameter is, is a telling factor. Diameter is a maximal characteristic, though. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm sure as, as you know, you can, for, from our own varied diets, everyone has, if, if you look before you flush, <laughs> and you can learn a lot about your own constitution by, by looking, but obviously, you know, there's a maximal diameter that, that can be comfortably passed, but that isn't achieved on a consistent basis. It can right. vary a lot. So, and then there's the issue of quantity and likewise ask with that. our own diets. Yeah. It, it varies with what you're eating and, uh, other circumstances. So, you know, there have been descriptions of, of scat piles that are of, of considerable volume that would suggest an animal that's very, very large. Uh, uh you know, I, I mean, I've seen some bear scats that were piles that were remarkably impressive as well. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're just going to, uh, yeah, they're going to avoid a larger quantity than others. So it's hard to, it's hard to make yeah. a real tight correlation. Can you that, that's just... why, why, like I said, there, there's really only, um, three, three factors. I think and we mentioned the association with footprints. Um, we mentioned the DNA. The other possibility is the parasite load. The internal parasites are often very specific to particular species. And by examining those internal parasites or their eggs, which is often the case, um, some, some uh, uh, associations or, or identities can be determined by that process. It's not one that I, I haven't had the opportunity to examine a lot of scat samples and so it's not a, a real area of my expertise but uh, is there a ratio or proportion of 
hey, if you eat human typical 2000 calorie diet, you're, you're going to produce this much waste. So, and I actually never asked you, do you have a theory, I, not to backtrack, but do you have a theory on how many calories the Sasquatch would actually need to consume in a day? Well, like I was saying, I was trying to grasp, pull those figures out of, out of the air, uh, uh off the cuff. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. But it was, uh, uh, I, I'd have to go back and refer. Gotcha. I mean, a human, a human, what, usually two to 3,000 calories? That's what they say. And I'm thinking and, if you're uh, 200 pounds, so in my head, right. I just multiply, go times right. four, go times four. I'm like, I would assume yeah. the caloric intake of a homo sapien would be very similar and then scalable on size. But I don't know right. if that's true. Well, I think it is. I think it is to a point because the, the only other variable in that uh, in that calculation is that there is a, a correlation with increasing body mass, basal metabolic rate is somewhat reduced oh, so you don't need to burn because your your surface to volume ratio is decreased. You lose less body heat to the environment, and so it takes less uh, you know caloric energy to maintain your body heat, your internal body sense. heat. So there's a slight uh, leveling of that curve. So I, you know, I would say probably, yeah, in the range of eight to ten thousand calories, uh, but I'd have to go back and look at those. Gotcha. Uh, and then look would, at those figures again. Would there be like an expected amount? Like, hey, man, you're gonna wind up going number two, <laughs> like eight times a day. Um, not necessarily. I mean, and, and human human uh, uh, toilet habits vary tremendously, and, and depending on age and uh, as well as diet. Uh, some for some people normal is one time a day, you know, at morning constitutional, and and you're you've taken care of it. Others it'll be morning and night, or each time you eat, or you know stimulates the gut to start moving things along. Uh, the other thing to bear in mind that that a good uh, forty to fifty percent of the volume of, of a typical scat uh, is the uh, the uh, uh, enteral flora, the, the, the bacteria that you have in your gut. Okay. It's amazing how much of a contribution that makes to it. I mean, we've, we've got this little ecological community that exists in our digestive system and people, you know, it's only recently started to get more, um, more attention as an important factor in your, uh, health, not just whether you're constipated or not, or have an irritable bowel, but, Actually, these uh, organisms, the right population, are very important in the production of vitamins and uh, things that we can't produce ourselves. We rely on these these little uh, internal, they're not exactly parasites, but symbiotes uh, to produce for us. But, but they, they contribute a, a considerable amount of volume. So I don't know that they're, if, if the study has been done as to the actual volume of yeah, intake right. versus the volume of excretion yeah in versus um, out like and i don't know like i just in my simple way i'm like okay if i eat a quarter pound burger i would then produce a quarter pounds worth of waste but that can't be true because you have to maintain some of it and like the waste could be sweat it's not well, going right. to be pure defecation well sure and, and you are absorbing i mean that stuff gets broken down and and lots of elements get absorbed into your body i mean right if we only took out just selectively what we needed for, for, for to keep our energy going, we wouldn't have to worry about laying down excess fat and 
getting getting obese. But uh, so there there is a there's a balance, and then plus you know in talking about sheer volume, um, you know the digestibility of some foods like proteins, we absorb a lot more of the volume of that burger than we would of the side salad that we eat, you know, uh, because a lot of that will go through largely, largely undigested. We can't digest uh, uncooked cellulose and uh, plant plant cell walls. And so they, they pass on through. Some of it is digested, I mean, to a certain degree by the internal flora that we have, but we usually don't uh, cultivate the uh, microbes that are necessary to to do that. I mean, even termites. Termites don't digest the wood they eat. The microbes in their guts digest it okay. and make it release those uh, sugars and, and uh, nutrients from from the cellulose. So even they are dependent on the uh, flora and fauna within their guts to accomplish that feat. So have. Have there been carcasses? So if Sasquatch is an omnivore, omni, you eat anything, right? So you right. would be, you might want meat. You may want some chicken, yep. some fish or something. Right. Have you, or has there been carcasses that people have found and tried to theorize, hey, this claw mark or the, the cause of death doesn't match up with animals that right. we believe to be in the area? On a, on a few occasions, there have been um, uh, bone piles, bones found of, of animals that uh, have suggested a particular uh, manner of breaking the neck by literally twisting the head back and, and bending it back, breaking the cervical vertebrae in a distinctive way. Now, you know, it's it's not certainly again not an exact science. There are other animals, uh, cougars and bears, that that can sometimes use that maneuver to to. Uh, kill a, an animal as well, I guess. How but, would they do it with paws? I'm assuming Sasquatch would have like the opposable thumb like us where you can grab. Right. Right? So well, like, how would a, a paw well, do that? A cougar does it either by, you know, biting or they have those hook claws that they can get a hold of and then just pull. With rip. a bear, they have claws usually not nearly as sharp as a feline and a cat's, but, but it's just the sheer strength of their forelimbs. Okay. You know, bears bears have adapted one of the, their behavioral adaptations is turning stones over to look for invertebrates or uh, small mammals un under stones and uh, so if you've ever seen a bear foraging they're walking along and they're turning these rather impressive rocks sometimes over and it's these massive shoulders and, and forearms that are adapted to doing that or tearing open uh, rotten logs to get to the grubs and so it's just and, the brute uh, strength, basically knocking the head strength. off your shoulders. I see. Right. I was picturing it almost like the kung fu movies, where you take the two hands and you go opposite right. and snap uh, yeah, the yeah, neck yeah. by the shoulders. You're talking. It's just almost like a punch straight to the it face. Could, yeah, it could be, or just a hyperextension. I mean, it's the pulling the neck. Okay. It seems the pulling the neck back over the uh, uh, on itself that that fractures the the uh, uh, neural arch, and that's what you know destroys the spinal cord and stops breathing and heartbeat and so forth. What type of animal were the carcasses? They were deer in this case. Uh, yeah, deer, black-tailed deer probably. How could you catch? I, I cannot picture, like, I, so I live in the country in Delaware, and I've, I've seen a spooked deer, and they are graceful and agile. 
How oh, are sure. you catching that at seven, eight hundred pounds? Yeah, well, uh, when when the deer's on the move, not likely, but it's probably by stealth uh, if they're able to ambush, you know, a deer in in that way. That uh, seems I you know. like that's that's hard. How could you be that big? It, it, it's weird to think huge, massive creature with heavy, big feet and stealth to get well, up on it, the deer. It's it's the ability not to move. To remain still that is the key. Um, I had one, one witness who described she used to, you know, go horseback riding on a regular basis, and she came out into this meadow on a trail that she'd ridden many times before. I mean, so so often that that she suddenly sensed that something was out of place, and she noticed there was this big, massive, looked like a boulder in the in the you know, twilight of the of the wee hours of the morning, apparently. And uh, she thought to herself, I don't remember that boulder being there. And suddenly the boulder moved, stood up, and turned and looked at her. And I guess the wind was just right. The horse hadn't caught wind of it. And uh, when it moved, you know, the ears pricked up and his eyes got big. And right. it just took a glance at her and turned and walked away into the trees. So, you know, it's the idea of our, our many animals, not only humans, but many animals, they're ability to see or to perceive a threat is dependent on the motion mm -hmm. and if something is very still and, and uh, silent as well as silent um, <clears throat> it's able to you know we have a hard time focusing on it right that's sometimes why you see you know animals doing this movement where they're going back and forth is they're trying to get a slightly different perspective on an object to, to get the volume to identify yeah to, to ascertain what it what it is um does but uh yeah does that say anything about so if if sasquatch would be the type of would you call it a predator the type of predator that would be stationary does that speak to any sort of character traits like hey you're not going to be angry if i stumble across you we can be cool if i'm gentle <laughs> does that go like to well to more i you know i i think that with with any animal of that size and potential strength you, you have to show deference and caution but i think i think uh, you know we can look at the example say of uh, the mountain gorilla i mean gorillas were were touted by barnum and bailey as the most terrifying creature on the planet and then they seemed to kind of morph as we learned more about them and became more familiar with their behavior in the wild <clears throat> they were the gentle giant and you can see if you you know if you watch in these documentaries, a big male silverback is capable of a of an imposing bluff charge. Uh, and if you've ever seen gorillas fighting, uh, you know they're extremely powerful and can can cause considerable damage to one another. But on the other hand, for the most part, they're remarkably uh, docile. You know, just mellow, huh? Uh, yeah, they're very mellow and. Uh, uh, orangutans perhaps even more so, although extremely powerful. Uh, chimps are much more raucous, and of course we have some unfortunate examples where uh, captive chimps have gotten out or turned uh, aggressive towards humans and, and wreaked considerable havoc uh, as a result of their powerful strength and their particular method of attack, where they concentrate on the face and the hands and the genitals, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> They're capable of 
of devastating injury, inflicting devastating injury with their with their powerful, uh, with their tremendous strength and 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 canine teeth. So it wouldn't be like a correlation between you're this type of you hunt with this method, you hunt by this method, therefore you tend to have this personality trait. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, because I, I don't think that there's any good solid uh, correlation established along those lines. Uh, I mean, because even uh, you know, you can take take our, our uh, my neighboring uh, Yellowstone National Park. On the one hand, you've got grizzly bears that occasionally, um, uh, because usually because a female has been separated or uh, inter. In, uh, human has insinuated itself between a, a mother and cubs uh, can can uh, dispatch a human with little uh, little effort. But on the other hand, there's also the the occasional tourist that gets gored by a buffalo. Huh. You know, think this big docile yeah. uh, grass eater, and yet it, it it's extremely agile, extremely fast, and quite uh, quite grumpy if you're too close to it you know they they have uh, rather uh, particular guidelines of how close you should be to an animal uh, in the park and, and ranging from either buffalo on the one hand or grizzly bear on the other so so i think it's more um it's more uh, territoriality or um just uh, you know the the uh, the tendency to to uh, protect uh, something like I, yeah. I imagine if you were if it was closer to its den yeah that's a good point do you believe like sleeping habits does it have would a sasquatch have a home or would it just roam and lay wherever it would like wherever that food source is well again we we only have a few anecdotal examples of, of, of observations and and they tend to support the fact and and, and the lack of evidence the lack of finding day nests uh, or ground nests or whatever um, would seem that they uh, just, like you said, lay down or curl up. There's a there's a few examples. It was a really intriguing recent example that uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, the discovery of, of what appear to be ground nests attributable to a Sasquatch or Sasquatches, no plural, uh, found in the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, bears, by comparison, have the habit sometimes of mounding up or scraping together vegetation that they sleep upon, you know, provide some insulation from the ground. These were constructed, though. They had branches that were interlaced and then debris, and then the top spriggers of uh, these evergreen blueberries that grow in these huge hedges of uh, seven, eight feet tall. Okay. Uh, were snapped off. The green, softer uh, sprouts were snapped off and piled up, and but not just piled, but plated. They were stuck in stem first, and then kind of woven in to create this huge nest that was big enough for a uh, you know someone uh, bigger than me to curl up in kind of a fetal position. And uh, that they, seems they were, a lot really of cognitive happy. ability. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that just yeah. seems like it, that's is that common for animals to go to have that many layers and that many intricacies? Well, uh, birds do it, obviously. They they are the tremendous nest builders. Chimpanzees and uh, uh, gorillas will build 
uh, tree nests where they bend the boughs in and weave them in under to hold them uh, in addition to their body weight to create a springy nest up in a tree. Um, the, uh, th those are the, I think the best examples. Th this is probably not a constant or a consistent behavior, uh, because we, otherwise we'd find nests all over the place. I would think, you know, they would accumulate things don't break down that rapidly in, in some of the forests where these creatures live. And so, um, this may have been a special case. It may have been just a situation where they were going to spend more time there for some reason, you know, and, and it's been suggested maybe it was, say, a birthing event. Maybe one of the females was about to give birth and some of the other members of the dispersed group had uh, congregated to lend support and protection. And so there was, since they were going to spend some time, they had the resources, they built these uh, these nests to help uh, accommodate the circumstances. I don't know, you know, we, we get, I, I'm always hesitant to speculate too much, Yeah. but it's interesting to theorize. I mean, is, is there some sort of rational possibility to, to account for this artifact or this behavior? And, and in this case, you don't have to look too far to, to see a, a fairly, uh, I mean, it, it first came to my mind, <clears throat> Just to give a little context, it first came to my mind when I had the opportunity to visit the site and witness this the the uh, this little accumulation of, of uh, nests. There was one that was built uh, in the crook of a of a shrub that was uh, about two feet off the ground, and it was smaller scale. And I thought, you know, if someone had suggested, oh, maybe they were just practicing or teaching a young one how to make a nest but i tell you when i saw it the first thing that came to my mind was it looked like a bassinet a little crib a little crib yeah and so that that made me think well hmm, maybe i mean because here's this ideal spot there's a there's a, a nice flowing creek down below that creek had salmon in it during the salmon run okay. there's the hedgerow there with of blueberries there's a carp uh, or a, a uh, sugar source of nutrition, uh, very desirable food, as you said, a preferred food. And, uh, and they were, I mean, this site was, oh, at least a mile and a half from the nearest road. That road was a gated road, a locked gated road on private land. Okay. And so it wasn't, this was, the only reason these were found is there was a timber cruiser, it was timber property, and a timber cruiser was marking trees for the, their next cutting. And um, and he happened upon these nests, having seen nests of bear and twat in the past. He was quite familiar and said, "I just could not rationalize this as a as a cluster of bear nests." And so he brought it to the attention of some of the local investigators, which happened to be members of what's called the Olympic Project, Derek Randalls and and uh, Shane Corson and David Ellis and others. So. Uh, uh, I was brought in to have the privilege of, of examining and taking some samples and uh, documenting. So it, it wasn't just size then, it's actually the structure, the way it's built, yep. not matching up with the common building practices of other animals in the environment. Right. And then right. you're like, so then what the heck? Yeah. Now, yeah, what, what could be responsible? Are you, when you're digging through that, Sasquatch looks so hairy. 
Are you yes. just praying? Are you hoping? <laughs> Do you have like a hair magnet to try to suck this thing out yeah. and find it? Or well, we we went through uh, very carefully. Um, I mean, there there are there are tricks of the trade. I mean, if you have like a piece piece of cardstock that you can put down, because then the hairs show up against that white, and we would collect every single fiber. We did take a a wedge. I I wanted to do like a stratigraphic section, so we cut uh, using shears. Uh, a wedge out of one of the nests and carefully pulled all that material out of the way, took it apart and looked at it sequentially, but then had that profile so you could see the layers. Mm -hmm. um, and then all that materi material removed, we bagged it in, uh, in fresh uh, bags and took it home and I air dried it and had students sift through in every single fiber, including, you know, they, they uh, on, on a gross level, sometimes you can't distinguish some of these little um, uh, plant fibers from animal hairs. Okay. And then once those were all picked out, you know, we mounted them, put them under the microscope, and there were hairs of uh, of a primate. I mean, it's it's very easy to distinguish a primate hair, and uh, uh, from fur-bearing mammals like bear or deer or whatever. Uh, because they have a combination of guard hairs and underfur. The guard hairs have a very distinctive uh, morphology. Our hair is kind of a modified, on our, on our bodies, is a modified form of guard hair. But, um, but these, you know, these looked like uh, absolutely consistent with other samples that we have attributed to Sasquatch on that basis. We've never successfully, pardon me, we've never successfully... Uh, extract the DNA from these hair samples. That's what I was wondering, because maybe I've watched too much CSI, but I'm like, don't you clip it? Don't you run it yep. through the little yep. the spinny machine? And then all of a sudden yep. it's like, not dog, not cat. And then you're like, right. yes. So that can well, happen. It's not, yeah, not quite, unfortunately, not quite that simple, but because one of the things that's distinctive about the hair that has been attributed to Sasquatch is that it lacks a cellular medulla. You know, if you see the, the, the microscopic image of a hair, it, uh, it there's the hair shaft, and usually running down the center is this dark band. Okay. And that usually contains the cell remnants of cells in the follicle that then are stacked up in there. It, it lends greater mechanical rigidity to the hair. And that's where the, the nuclei and mitochondria are that, that contain the DNA. Sasquatch hair, for whatever reason, whether it's insulative quality or whatever, has no medulla. And so there aren't, you know, in the shaft itself, there aren't dead cells uh, remnants, but just the keratin that has been secreted uh, by the cells, this extracellular protein that gives the, the shaft its, uh, its mechanical structure and surrounded by a cuticle. So getting hair, I'm sorry, getting DNA from a hair that lacks a medulla and doesn't have an actively growing follicle or a skin tag attached to it where it's been you know, forcefully pulled out is, is rather challenging, uh, if not impossible altogether. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so far, the only time, and then, and then that's compounded by the fact that uh, Sasquatch are probably, you know, of all the mammals out there, Sasquatch would be the most closely allied with us. It would be most similar to us. Well, we know chimpanzees 
are also very similar to us, and they share, oh, depending on which estimate you take, 94 to 98% identity with us as far as their DNA sequence. If this creature is even more closely related to us than a chimp, then it could be a tenth of a percent different. So unless you look at a lot of DNA, well, what happens is on the occasions they get DNA, it almost, it, it's it, invariably, it's uh, human, identified as human. Oh, okay. Well, and, and the conclusion is one of two things. Either it was contaminated through handling, or it's just simply a misidentified human hair. One of the observer's hair uh, was shed into the environment and got picked up. But there's a third possibility that gets overlooked usually, and that is what I've just described. I'm with you. That is that they're so closely related to us that if you're just sampling a little bit, which is often the case with these, you know, production companies uh, commissioning some lab just to do a quick, brief, dirty study, uh, they don't they don't sequence sufficient to come to a real legitimate conclusion as to whether it's different from us or not. If you too, if you sample too small uh, an amount of DNA, then what's the conclusion going to be? It, it Likely you're going to miss any distinguishing marker that separates them from us, and the conclusion will be it's it can't be differentiated from humans. Wouldn't Ergo, it, it must be human. That's the simplest explanation. Wouldn't it just be as simple when you take the slice with the... Was it medulla? I'm so unfamiliar with the word. I'm sorry. But like, wouldn't yeah, you, right. isn't it as simple as human have medulla, Sasquatch no have medulla? And when well, you slice it, you'd see that? Yeah, it's, it's not quite that simple because some human hairs, especially, uh, say, uh, very toe-headed or blonde, fine blonde hair, often lacks a cellular medulla too. Oh. But one of the things, the other things is human hair invariably has a cut end. Because we, we start cutting our hair at a very early age, right? Okay. So when we find hairs that are grown to length and, and are worn bluntly without any sign of cutting, it's either a wild human or it's something else. Oh. <clears throat> and you but, found hair like that? Well, that, oh, sure. That's just oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, in my book, <clears throat> these are Sasquatch hair. But in the court of scientific opinion, you need a little bit more. Yeah. You know, if, if, if there's the possibility of confirming or refuting that proposition in a much more definitive manner by doing DNA, then let's hold ourselves to that higher standard is the argument. Well, I agree, that, and that's perfectly fine, but that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater in, in the process. You know? No, I, I, I have mean, not thought of that. That, to me, that's... Brilliant. Like, name a person that's never had a haircut, right? You typically stop that. Maybe you let some babies not have haircuts, and then it's like this big thing where you finally get it in your two. Right. But right. when once you turn two, you're getting your ends trimmed at the bare minimum. Right. And I, I never thought about just looking at the end of the hair to how it stopped. Was it just blunt or natural versus sheared sure. off? And it's, it's very obvious under the microscope when it's oh, really? cut. Yeah, because it would just be so clean, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Got you. It's often very angular. It's never cut, you know, just perpendicular to the long axis, but it's an angular cut, and it's very, it's it's very very clear, very obvious. Now, sometimes there's individuals with with split ends, or you know, the hair's damaged uh, with right. uh, heat or heat or whatever product, and 
but uh, still, nevertheless, it's still pretty straightforward to identify the human hair. No fluid or remnants of fluid in that nest. So if it's a birthing place, I'm associating it with a typical, I guess, mammal birth where you would have fluid. <laughs> well, right. And, and see, when I, when I examined these, it was, well, the, because it was actually the forest uh, or the lumber company employee that brought it to the attention, the company was quite willing to hold off on their plans to harvest Very nice of them. Uh, to give the uh, organization time to do some study and to monitor the area in hopes that something would come back. Oh, I didn't and, even think know, about that. I just thought you guys, because I was wondering, yeah. why not just scoop it up and give it to you whole? But you were hoping it would almost be like a sneak, oh, yeah. like an ambush. Yeah. Come on back. Because when, they, when they were found, the, uh, the blueberry, uh, um, you know, this evergreen blueberry sprouts or spriggers still were green and the, the leaves attached. Oh, wow. New. When I came there five years later, of course, those had all dried up and fallen down in the nest. And it looked much more like a bird's nest of just twigs and branches. So when they found it, it was fairly recent. And so the possibility of something coming back. See, now they have, they have since systematically surveyed those, that region and looked for other areas with similar conditions. They have found other clusters of nests. And, and due to their deterioration and, you know, just degradation into the soil and so forth, they, apologize, they, um, they uh, uh, you know, estimate that they are years old. And so, again, it, 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 it appears that this is something that occurs, and this is apparently a preferred area. That's uh, what I was, I'm they're just wondering. Back. Yeah, so I've heard of, it, like, I don't again, I'm, I'm so stupid into these areas so i think of things simply like don't turtles go miles 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 and come back to their birthing places sure. isn't that kind of a common trait so what i'm well, thinking yeah. is could yeah. that be like the preferred birthing area for the sap it could it could certainly certainly many birds and and reptiles uh especially marine reptiles do that and and it's it's possible i don't know if there of there being any precedent amongst the uh, primates for that kind of behavior. But I mean, other than, uh, you know, it's going back, like you said, to preferred preferred resources, availability of, of desirable, let's just say desirable resources. This area has the seclusion and the, you know, the uh, uh, concealment yeah. and, and the food resources that make it someplace where you could hang out and not be obligated to go out foraging great distances if, if the timing were such right. that it coincided with the availability of fish and, and uh, berries. I mean, you've got your bases kind of covered. Um, you know, who knows if that, uh, if that is the case, but uh, it, you know, it was very, uh, it's, it's, it sits, they're, they're right on the edge of a very steep slope that drops off. Oh, at least, Oh, 100, 150 feet, 200 feet, oh, wow. sloping, sloping down steeply to the creek. Okay. The creek is very, you know, uh, confined and, and secluded in and of itself. So you can get down to, to water and back. And then the, the backside especially is literally just hedged in. I mean, if you were picking a spot, <laughs> uh, uh, a strategic spot, this would be a really great area to, uh, 
you know, where, where you wanted to not be vulnerable yeah, and yet say. have some defense. Now, you startled me when you said possible protection. As in, like, I'm picturing Mama Sasquatch, hopefully Daddy Sasquatch is there, but now we've got, like, uncles and aunts making yeah. sure. What are you basing that on? You, well, I mean, the, the number of nests. Oh. There were, uh, I think if I got the count right, there was uh, six or seven nests. Oh. And a varying size. I mean, there was one that looked like it was Papa, I don't want to say Papa Bear and confuse right. anyone, but, you know, Goldilocks and Three Bears. There was one that was was exceptionally uh, big and oblong that could easily have accommodated you know a dominant male, uh, and and then there were others that were varying sizes and elaborateness, um, but yeah, it could have been a kind of clan gathering, if you will, uh, where again we're, we're speculating yeah. here. The yeah. the bottom line is there were these curious nests that didn't seem to comport with what might be expected for other forms of wildlife. Um, you know, it just, uh, so it, it opened up an interesting possibility. No doubt. And we, we can speculate about all the potential interpretations. And like I said, I just would, I'd be hesitant. I don't want people to be turned off by what, what might appear to be overly speculating. Yeah. Like too, too much, much circumstantial it. evidence or sure. something like that. Right. Yeah. But man, it's, it's, but that's also part of the thinking to have a focus for your theory to pursue, oh, right. right? I mean, it's got to be right. plausible. So when you say it out loud exactly. and then you're like, it could be, right? Like then that's right. you see that, detective yeah. shows all the time. They start getting the motive for the murder and then they just start throwing it out there. And when they get to the, yeah, but that doesn't make sense, you stop. Right. You know? Exactly. And I, and I think that's a very productive and, and, uh, and useful exercise because uh, – in so doing, you quickly arrive at the conclusion that this, is, like you said, it's actually absolutely plausible. Mm -hmm. It's not only possible; it's plausible, yeah. and and uh, you don't have to resort to explanations like it. You know, it stepped out of a UFO, or it came out of the ether, it or gets beamed down in, here for three months, <laughs> portal, or something like that. You don't. You really don't have to, and especially in the absence of, of that kind of evidence and the leap of faith or fancy that, that it requires. Instead, you have something that really is readily seen as just a natural part of the landscape. Do you just have part of, part of the ecosystem? Do you have like a map somewhere where it's like nest here, spotting here, spotting here, spotting here, and we're kind of getting like an area a, a nomadic pattern of travel or something or oh not not really no i mean there there certainly uh, we have examples of repeat appearances of individuals okay. but they're but they're not of, of a fine enough texture you know temporally chronologically that we could really you know connect the dots and say well here's here we're, we're, we're tracking one individual along its route I don't think that there's any evidence to suggest, um, you know, uh, large-scale migratory routes, transcontinental sorts of, of routes of travel. I do think that there is seasonal movements. I mean, we do have examples. I mean, I'm aware of some here in my own neighborhood based on descriptions of uh, seasonal appearances and movements described by local uh, observers including Native Americans on the, the, the tribal lands, 
they're quite adamant that uh, you know after the in, in the late fall that they tend uh, they when I say they we may be talking about one or two that they tend to come down from the high country and uh, along the river drainages where they're I think they're gleaning fruit like uh, hawthorn berry that's rich in this area okay. and and things like elderberry and other other edibles that are uh, become much more available in the fall. And they, they um, say they come down into the, uh, the bottoms, uh, the river bottoms on the uh, reservation where they harvest and over winter. Yeah. And um, so, and they say, and sometimes they go down along the reservoir and we, we see them up by Mount Putnam. You know, they, they describe these areas that they supposedly move around in. But, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like they, uh, are uh, moving across vast landscapes. It's just seasonal uh, shifts in in uh, the location of preferred resources and, and sheltering from uh, snow accumulation in, in this area. Um, there was actually a, <clears throat> a paper that was done by a, uh, he was a student at the uh, University of Colorado and he did his, um, uh, senior thesis, his honors thesis on geospatial uh, analysis of the movements of Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest over a 20-year period. Basically, what he's, he did is he, he culled the databases and he plotted these, uh, you know, through time. And then using various algorithms, they tried to establish that there were any patterns of movement through time. And uh, what they found was that there was a general shift to the south and to higher elevations up in the Cascades, hmm. um, adjacent to the Seattle greater metropolitan area and down in northern Oregon to the Portland. And uh, it, it was, I mean, it was statistically significant okay. and suggesting that there was a response to the population growth Expanding. in those metropolitan areas. Now, he didn't pick up anything that suggested, you know, seasonal mass movements from one state to another, but rather these were seasonal movements, regional movements that suggested, you know, altitudinal uh, um, regression and, uh, and more southerly to kind of displace away from presumed increased recreation from from the city centers and up into the mountains. If they're as large as you're saying, and I really, I hadn't thought about, you know, you're bigger so you don't lose as much heat kind of a thing to make right. it real basic. You wouldn't really right. need that seasonal migration because you could withstand the cold. Well, that that's one possibility. I mean, certainly there are, there are animals and primates that, um, that endure, uh, for example, the, uh, Rhinopithecines, a, a group of, uh, of uh, colobus monkey family uh, in China that uh, endure uh, very harsh winter conditions with lots of snow accumulation. And these are, these are monkeys, not apes, but still uh, closely allied. And, and interestingly, they live on, you know, we talked about tree lichen. Mm -hmm. These species, their fallback food in the winter is tree lichen. The uh, um, the very same uh, Briaria. There we go. I knew oh. it would pop in my head. Briaria fremontii. 
<laughs> and uh, and they have the same species over there. I talked to one of the investigators, uh, uh, one of the researchers of the, the diets of these monkeys and, and got more details from him and some references that from some of his work. And then I, I told him why I was interested. He was fascinated. He said, well, it makes perfect sense. That's exactly right. what you would expect. And um, so, uh, so yeah, the, whether they hibernate or not remains a, an unanswered question. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly is possible. Uh, there have been, in fact, quite recently, there was just a paper that suggested that Neanderthal skeletons showed evidence, and I can't remember now exactly, I didn't read the paper that, that carefully yet, got it in my to-read pile, but that <laughs> there were uh, evidence, there was evidence in the skeleton that suggested that, uh, that the Neanderthals had gone through seasonal periods of inactivity, uh, namely, you know, sleeping, estivating. We you know... We, we know from, uh, you know, the ethnography of northern tribes like the Inuits, uh, you know, if the seals don't show up when they expect them to show up, they'll spend weeks at a time just sleeping to conserve energy. How do you they, determine that based on, like, skeletal remains? Well, there was a certain, uh, in, in, in the growth, uh, bones don't have growth rings like a tree, but there is evidence of... Uh, the remodeling of the what's called the aversion system, the internal architecture of the bone, and disruptions or uh, the deposition of toxins and so forth in, in that bone matrix can indicate periods when apparently they were uh, less active. So it, does, it wouldn't, basically the ring would be smaller for the yeah. bone when you're hibernating because your body doesn't need as much. Something like that, yeah. Something like that, where, the, where just the processes, the normal remodeling and rejuvenation processes are, are slowed down because everything else is slowed down. Um, so I'll have to go back, go back to the paper. but No, I, 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 that, that makes sense. Um, and by the way, just the fact that you were like, oh, I knew it would come to me, and then you spouted off like 22 syllables to name tree bark. <laughs> wicked, <laughs> wicked impressive. I was like, God. I'm curious, being so scientific, the balance between quantitative data and qualitative data, when you interview someone, not saying people are a liar, not saying I believe one person more than the other, but do you have like certain questioning techniques that you apply to be like, oh, that's more credible than others, other yeah. interviewees? Well, no, you know, honestly, I, I must be quite... Uh open and say, I, I do not consider myself a good interviewer. I have a tendency to accept people at their word, and I don't press for the details that I should as much. I, and I, So I leave that to people who have much better skills. I'm primarily, when it comes to eyewitness accounts, I tend to focus my time and energy on those that have some form of corroboration, namely footprints or hair or something wow. that, that goes beyond just their uh, visual impression. You know, there's been, I recently uh, 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 reviewed a paper that uh, was uh, pointing to the um, uh, patterns that seem to emerge from the large accumulation of eyewitness accounts. And in the past, and they brought this up as well in their discussion in the paper, in the past, some people have uh, drawn considerable um, uh, 
criticism uh, towards the possible reliability of uh, eyewitness accounts. Because well, yeah, eyewitnesses are like it, it's pretty well known that the worst type of evidence is eyewitness evidence, right? That, that has always been the the uh, party line. And not just with Sasquatch and, sightings, with right. criminal well, sure. cases. It's, 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 people have that bias. It, in special adjudications, yeah, in criminal cases and in, in court cases. Now, and, and they discussed this, and they introduced some of the literature, and in, in doing my review of the paper, I this prompted me to dig into it even more deeply, because one time I was doing a radio interview, and uh, one of the callers, uh, he immediately asked, well, are you, you're, are you familiar with the work of Elizabeth Loftus? And I said, well, yes. I said, uh, she's the one who had garnered some notoriety for her uh, testifying in courts about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony and memory, uh, right. the memories of eyewitnesses, and, and especially regressed memories that are, are surfacing through questioning. And I said, well, yes, I said, but I think that, that you're describing some a particular circumstance, as you point out, in adjudication. That was what her emphasis was, her expertise. But, uh, and, and he would not have it. He, he, uh, he just said, you, you know, that eyewitness testimony is unreliable. You cannot rely on it. You just have to throw it out. And I said, well, it's a little different when, you know, imagine you have a little old lady, if I can still use that that uh, stereotype without, without offending <laughs> anyone. But it's a little lady who's been mugged downtown and here's a lineup of, of suspects, you know, potential muggers, and she's got to pick out the one particular guy from that. That's a little different from comparing to, say, an experienced woodsman or outdoorsman or, or woman person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't kowtow to... Um, but, um, and here's the lineup and only here the lineup is a wolf, a bear, a moose, a Bigfoot and a backpacker. Yeah. Now, which did you see? You know, I mean, it's apples to oranges and you know, this just aggravated him. Finally, he got, we, we argued around a big circle and, uh, and I was not yielding any ground to him. And he said, he goes in frustration. If there was an 800-pound gorilla out there in the woods, people would be seeing it. And I said, well, isn't that where this conversation yeah, isn't that started? what is yes, happening? <laughs> like, they are got seeing a bunch it. of people in different spots that, saying exactly, these same characteristics. But you're dismissing it all and throwing it out. Yeah, because it's not like people are... Yeah, they're not having to say <laughs> he had this type of weapon and the shade of brown was more right. of a mocha with right. blue eyes like they're not getting into that right. sort of exactly. detail right it's just this so, almost silhouette that they're describing right yeah. so this paper that i reviewed one of the things in the past that this news or this interview took place uh you know 20 years ago in the past decade there have been a number of publications one one particular investigator now his name escapes me but uh he has done work in reaction to the huge impact that Elizabeth Loftus has had on the discipline. And he argues, based on his research, that in fact, when you take into consideration certain conditions, that actually memory is remarkably reliable. Oh, really? And that witnesses are able to recall a lot of detail. 
and then he talks about the problem with uh, judications, with with the, the criminal court situation, where the motivation of an eyewitness may be extremely biased or yeah. tainted by other other concerns, you know, which go un uh, unconsidered in uh, in Elizabeth's uh, studies. So it was really quite fascinating. So I, uh, you know. In, in discussing that and in qualifying my my sort of endorsement of their conclusions, I said, however, I have learned, uh, you know, in, in, in the case of footprints where we have a somewhat of a control, mm -hmm. that is the footprint itself, that people describing their experience, their observation rather, if I can follow up and examine the, the actual photograph of a footprint, or a cast of a footprint, in many instances, their assessment of the footprint is unreliable. And it's not because, I mean, not only is it in, I mean, it goes beyond just the description, which often is embellished or exaggerated, but they don't have the wherewithal to interpret what they're seeing. And and so that's the problem. That's the that's the one, uh, or not the one, but that's the the. the <laughs> suite of, of concerns that carries over to eyewitness accounts as well. If the observer, I mean, the, the conditions of observation, the experience and composure of the observer, etc. I mean, it's just like, who was it? Uh, I was reading in uh, online here recently, they were talking about the utility of a, of a shotgun as home defense or as a hunting weapon, you know, for non-birds and and uh, they they gave this story of a farmer and uh, the bear was after his pig so he grabs the shotgun and a few shells sticks them in his pocket steps outside onto the porch and the first blast from his shotgun hit the bear in the rump i mean that's what was directed towards it made the bear really mad and it turned around and it started coming at him and so he just calmly you know, it, it was a it was a, a breakdown. Word. What do you call it? The shotgun. He opens it up, pulls the single shot, yeah. pulls the shell out, calmly reaches in, pulls and shoves the other one in. Boom, boom. This time it hit the bear in the side of the face and shoulder and made the bear even madder. Oh god! <laughs> and so the bear is charging at him. You know, so he calmly snaps open the shotgun, pulls out the shell, pulls out another one, shoves it in, and. Boom! Dispatches the bear literally three feet in front of him. You know, wow. full facial facial shot, dead. The point of that story is that they said, "Can can you kill a bear with a shotgun?" Yes, but do you have the composure that this farmer demonstrated? Gotcha. You know, do you have the the calmness and the confidence to sit there and repeatedly shoot? Well, the same thing goes with the the eyewitness. You know, yes, you might be able to rely on an eyewitness if the eyewitness has the calmness and composure and experience and skill of observation that uh, that is necessary to discriminate what it is you're actually seeing. So that every bump in the night, every flash of fur, everything else doesn't get automatically interpreted as being uh, from a Sasquatch. Sasquatch. And that's kind of what I was thinking. A lot of times with criminal cases, people can be in unfamiliar environment so your body's almost registering everything around and now you're asking me to get super specific and it goes to the lady who was like that boulder wasn't there yesterday 
Right. So are right. the are the majority or all of the sightings from people who are just like wilderness people that have those same patterns and are very used to the intricacies of the forest that they're around? I, I think that, that there's a significant, I mean, well, it's, it's hard to judge because of the, uh, well, I, I caught myself. I wanted to back off because there are, you know, say for example, a, a go-to database is the, the BFRO, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization has this online database of, reports that have been submitted and then in many cases those that those that are posted certainly are investigated by quote bfro curators these are individuals that have been vetted and designated as the go-to person the contact person to look into and evaluate critique the uh, and, and basically kind of rank the, the qualities, class A, class B, class C, whatever. They have criteria by which they assign those rankings. Oh, my gosh. Just as um, a sign-up, so they're, in super simple terms, there are Bigfoot certified investigators to get the data onto this website. Right, exactly. And, and you're just like but, regional. Hey, you're the guy yeah. for this region. Call him up. Right. And so, as you could imagine, there's the potential for variance in the – skill levels and the discernment of those individuals yeah. uh, and so they may not all be on par but it's it's really remarkable when you look at through the database <clears throat> you know I'll, I'll sometimes use it as a springboard just to get an idea of what's been reported from a given area if i'm going to be in an area but there's a lot of reports that are just bumps in the night i mean literally they're bumps in the night that someone has attributed a sound or a, you know, an overturned rock or a bed tree or a tree structure or whatever to Sasquatch activity. And uh, that's got to be frustrating for someone like you who like, I, I love what you said is the eyewitness, the ones that can, and I always struggle with the word corroborate where like, Hey, you've got the footprint. So this is an additional piece. We've got some hardcore, like concrete evidence like if you're looking to do some research and you're like, oh, freaking rock paper, gone. <laughs> like, oh, broken tree branch, gone. Like that's just got to add to the inconvenience. It, it does a little bit. I mean, th there is certainly a lot of a lot of uh, uh, winnowing of the chat, right? you might say. Yeah, that's good. Um, and it's, you know, it, it also becomes, unfortunately, becomes distracting because, um, the, the skeptics obviously jump on that as as well as someone who might be serious if they run into a lot of uh, spurious inconsequential reports yeah. which oftentimes get headlines you know get the news coverage then it comes off that all right. such reports are are uh, unreliable well probably because they're easier to read too right like broken branch right. i don't have to have the mental stamina to actually read right. through or the nesting thing the details you put onto that nesting yeah site like I i've got to get to the bottom of the page i can't just read the headline that's right that's right no and that, that's very true that's see that 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 brings up another whole other thing it's always frustrating when i do you know these documentary interviews and these podcasts afford a, an opportunity to explore in greater depth but on the documentaries i'll i'll have a film crew here interviewing for the better part of a day and that translates into maybe 15 30 seconds yeah i was shocked statement. 
I was shocked at, at, in, in the Hulu because I think it was episode one, maybe it's four total episodes for the Sasquatch one. I, I like I expected you to keep getting spliced in there. And I think maybe you got touched back on the fourth episode. And I'm not like being uh, I, I, discrediting, I, I but I think of that. And I've seen interviews where you sit down with someone for three, four hours, and then you get in a newspaper half half a page, you know, like 3,000 words. And you're like, that can't do it justice. Well, it's, it's tough, yeah, because there, there are not uh, – there aren't simple segue answers, soundbite answers rather, that, that – that address that fully address and account for the the uh, depth and intricacy of so many of these uh, these different types of evidence. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's it, it can be uh, it can be frustrating. I mean, that's why I, I feel a real urgency, kind of to especially as as the gray continues to and white continues <laughs> to accumulate, and time is uh, more precious that. Uh, to get some of these discussions into print, the podcasts are a great way to do oh, it as well. Verbal I mean, time it, capsule, man. Verbal yeah, time capsule. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, we kind of ramble from topic to topic, but uh, still, it, it's a great way to explore and to discuss in, in greater depth. Because, um, you know, I, like I said, I think I said it here uh, as well. I was talking in conversation earlier as you as you theorize uh, around the kernel of what we have um, and, and the picture then um, takes on a broader perspective, mm-hmm. it, it really is recognizable as, as, uh, as a natural part of the landscape. I, I sometimes criticize, you know, it's so funny. Here's a prime example. I was invited to speak at a, at a, a, a Western university um, by an anthropology department, and uh, not only did I speak to the um, the class of a particular professor, but he arranged for a campus-wide presentation seminar, and so it was well attended, uh, primarily by the anthro department, but it was well attended by the student population at large. And and uh, during the Q and A, the department chairman, who was a forensic archaeologist, um, was uh, asking me, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what his specific question. Where, basically, the question: Where's the body? Where's Where the, the body? Hey, man, where's the corpse? Yep. We, we exactly. got, we got to have it. So I offered him, you know, my my uh, explanation, and it's not a short one, <laughs> because, like we said, in order to to do it justice, you've got to kind of lay out what are all these, what are all the variables, which, when I consider, make it not that of a damning of an absence so and uh, offered that and you know he just kind of nodded and so forth and then we moved on well that evening at dinner i had an opportunity to visit with him a little more uh, around the table and i said so did you find that answer satisfying and he said no <laughs> and he and i said well you know um did he have specific qualms about it? Like, hey, man, you're saying well, bones are going to go away, but if they're more dense bones, then why would they go away so quickly? Or something like that? His world was forensic archaeology. In other words, he mm. is preoccupied with the traces that are left behind by human activity. And in, from, from his perspective, in some form or another, all human activity leaves 
behind a trace. And so there should be a trace, you know, and was basically what it boiled down to. But I said, well, you know, I mean, I, I offered you an explanation, which from a perspective of a biologist, one that's familiar with taphonomy, the, the, the fate of corpses after they die, um, it, 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 I don't find that wanting. I mean, it's not surprising that we haven't found the remains of a rare and elusive animal like this. Do you mind yeah. getting into it? I mean, I'd love to hear the case because that. Oh, sure. That yeah, that's well, that that's let me, let me is just the number finish, one question. Finish the story, and then we'll we'll go circle right back to that. Awesome. Um, uh, and so I said, well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. I find it interesting that when someone takes a skeptical stance, like you like you're doing, not to label you as a skeptic, right. card holding skeptic, <laughs> but um, uh, when someone takes that stance. They're, they usually base it upon some particular missing piece of evidence. They have their their favorite, if you will, piece of evidence. Smoking gun. Uh, that I would give you in terms of some question of forensic archaeology. And that changed the tone of the conversation a little bit. He, he had a little, a little more open-minded uh, posture from there on out. But I just, I just was flabbergasted. Oh, well, I'm not an expert in footprints. That, and that's kind of part of the challenge, see, is to me, the footprints scream loudly uh, their, their implication. But to someone who can't appreciate the subtleties of anatomy and function uh, of the foot and its evolutionary history and comparative anatomy, it's, the, you know, the message is lost on them. Not entirely and, and, and uh, uh, not uh, generally, but... Uh, Anyway, so back to your question about where's the body? Where's where's the beef? I don't know if you're old enough to remember that commercial. Oh, yeah, Wendy's. Old lady opens up the hamburger bun. Absolutely. Where's, where's the, beef? the beef? Dude, that, it's, uh, that, that's iconic. Well, there's, there's two two elements or two factors. One's the biotic and the abiotic. The biotic is, um, you know, when we look at the organism itself, we look at uh, this is a large-bodied ape, a long-lived uh, ape, probably, you know, common for it to live given its size and, uh, and that it's a great ape, uh, at least 50 years in the wild even. And um, so it reproduces infrequently. A death is really a fairly rare occurrence. When you consider the rarity of these animals in the environment, you know, here in Idaho, we've got uh, 35,000 black bear and we have, I would estimate, top somewhere between 150 to 300 sasquatch can i ask based on clues about social structure home range size uh okay. you know, caloric needs and so forth gotcha because basically um, just from like an evolutionary standpoint so, if the environment I'm sean sorry. i can't hear you oh i was muted i had an oh, audio issue with you for a moment i'm so sorry so oh, that's then, all right just for like someone layman wise because they need so many resources, the environment, even though they consume it and it's available for one, that environment would not sustain 300. And when the right. environment can't sustain, evolution kind of takes over and you don't just keep producing. Right. Okay. Exactly. All right. So they, they've struck that equilibrium. So in any case, so the point is that the, the parameters that we've kind of discussed about social structure and longevity, et cetera, et cetera, all kind of solitary behaviors, all kind of points to um, uh, you know their their 
life cycle being such that uh, that death is a fairly rare event in in a large geographic area like the state of Idaho, for example. And so, um, so you've got that. You also other parameters. It's at the top of its food chain. It has no natural predators. So when it dies, it dies a natural death. Animals that that succumb to natural causes, when they get old and decrepit, they tend to secrete themselves off to somewhere out of the way, you know, in some nook or cranny. Um, not like a, you know, the the romantic notion of an elephant graveyard where right. elephants wander off. I mean, that was, but but that's pertinent. Um, I, I I sometimes show my students this time lapse uh, film of where where an animal, uh, an elephant, had been uh, killed by poachers, and so they to take advantage of the situation, they put up a time lapse camera, and over the course of two weeks, this you know what ton two ton uh, uh, elephant was rendered down to nothing, not even a scrap of hide was showing everything was gone would the environment be similar well well no in this case this case it was mostly the action of animals i mean you can see the maggots the maggots going the animals the hyenas are chewing at it the other animals the vultures but but every bone every piece of hide was either carted off or consumed and there wasn't even a grease spot even the bugs you know that had gotten everything yeah in two weeks, you know. I, I think it can be easy for people to forget, like, uh, animals, I'm not that they're simple. I don't want to offend animals. But <laughs> animals, like, that's kind of what they do all day. They just walk around looking to consume. They're looking for, for that sure. food source. And when they yep. find it, they are hella happy. <laughs> and sure. they're well, going to get it for all they want. So it can be easy with grocery stores to be like, for us as humans, to not understand the obsessive nature of food for every that's single right. consumer. Right, exactly. Oh, I know. When, when you're hungry, you just go to the pantry or the refrigerator. Right. You know, you, it's just uh, we, we've taken, we've we've uncoupled that de- that feeling of, of dependency yeah. and urgency yeah. to fill our bellies. Yeah. Dude, the elephants. So anyway, at least for the most part, not all of us. We can, you know speak speak for ourselves, but um, so so you've got that factor on the one side, and then you have um, the Oh, and then, and then the eight, the other biotic factors are all the things we just mentioned with the elephant, the, the scavengers and the microbes and so forth, the gnars that chew up bone and and um, and even in, uh, dentin of teeth and so forth. And then the abiotic in, is the environment. You asked, is the environment similar? Well, in the Pacific Northwest, we're dealing with wet coniferous forests that tend to create acidic soils. Just oh. like you know, the pine needles from your fir, your spruce, your blue spruce kills all the grass underneath because it becomes so acidic. Um, likewise, the uh, many of the soils in the Pacific Northwest, which have a volcanic contribution, uh, the volcanic soils, the ash also lends to the acidity. The point being that if the gnars and chewers haven't done away with the bone entirely. Then what scraps are exposed to the environment uh, quickly decay and deteriorate. Are there uh, some like comparative studies, like where you would leave human bones out or ape bones to just see what na- almost like a compost heap? I don't know if that's insensitive yeah. to say, but like oh yeah, no, no, but it's, but it's very, very, very true. This is this is the science of taphonomy, and to 
to understand the processes that impact human archaeological or prehistoric uh, uh, remains, as well as uh, even in cases of um, you know search and rescue, uh, finding missing persons and identific not only identification but the time of death in in uh, CSI type of uh, situation right. crime scene investigation. And so here here on campus we had a we had a, a student a couple of students in fact did their theses where they would actually get slaughtered pigs and stake them out in varying conditions you know and mm -hmm. in, in shade and sunlight and in uh, um, places where it would get hotter in the sun yeah and, right dampness and so forth. Yeah, all sorts of variables is there and like they would oh, no, they I'm would sorry. come back and take pictures they would collect the insects and and uh, uh, quantify the uh, insect population. Uh, yeah, it's quite a science. Is there kind so, of a rule of thumb for deterioration of bones? Well, there's so many conditions: uh, the moisture, the bugs, you know, microbes, and so forth, and, and other uh, scavengers—not predators, scavengers—in in the area. So, no, there's not. I mean, there there have been correlations created. Uh, so that if you find a cadaver in a particular environment where you where you can know the conditions, um, then you can extrapolate that. That makes so there's commonality in the variables. Hey, if we're yeah. out in the desert, we know sure. bones deteriorate this manner. If we're in the bottom of a forest with no sunlight, acidic right. soil, gotcha. Okay. So um, so there's all those things. So when, when you take those into account. It's not surprising that we don't find a lot of remains uh, preserved. You know, I, I have uh, uh, corresponded with a, a, a colleague who specializes in the excavation of Pleistocene sediments in caves in southeastern Alaska. Now, a cave, a limestone cave environment is ideal for the preservation of bone. That's where the mineralization of bone, the the fossilization best takes place, so an alkaline environment. But even in those caves, in talking with him, um, very few remains of bears, for example, have been found. He said, yeah, you can count the number of bears we've found on, on, on both hands. Uh, and this is where they go into a cave and they excavate it right down to the bedrock. So they're sampling tens of thousands of years of time. Now, of bears coming and going and so forth. So counter argument, maybe bears just don't like to go there when they die. <laughs> well, that's Why possible. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's a possibility too. And maybe those that are found in there are only there because because they uh, uh, were sealed in by a cave-in or, or died oh, okay. from asphyxiation because they were hibernating and everything got sealed up with excessive snow. Um, those That can certainly happen. But the point is, again, if there's 35,000 black bear now, say the you, you, you multiply that over millennia and the number of bears that have come and gone. And we've got just a, you know, a dozen or so examples from that sampled strip of time. Right. And what are the odds of finding a Sasquatch when there's one hundredth the number of Sasquatch for the number of bears that have come and gone? In fact, even even. That's a snapshot. One one Sasquatch to a hundred black bear, but black bear die at about age twenty twenty five, whereas the Bigfoot is living twice as long. So it halves the ratio even again 
by virtue of the longevity. <laughs> and you're basing the lifespan primarily comparing to like apes, or is it a size oh, yes. thing? Both. Okay. Both. And, and you're, 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 I'm glad you pointed that out because I didn't want to be guilty of uh, appearing to uh, conjecture too far. But yes, I mean, if, if we have a Sasquatch, you know, where does Sasquatch fit in the scheme of things? Well, it, it certainly is at least nested within the great apes and humans. Okay. And, and within that clade, we call it, within that group, the life expectancy is fairly consistent. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we see ourselves as living much longer than apes do. The oldest gorilla in captivity was gorgeous, the gorilla, and she lived to be 62. She was here at the home of zoo in Salt Lake City. Um, our life expectancy up until quite recently was only about 45 years of age, 45 to 55 maybe. Without like medical interventions and immune system shots, diet. Right. Now, now I don't know what it is. It's probably in the 70s or high 60s, I guess. For You'd have to look and see what the, the most recent uh, uh, expectation is. But, um, and of course it varies where, where you live in the world. Right. But anyway, the point being, I think it's fair. And then as you point out, there's a positive correlation of longevity with body mass. So the larger you are, the longer you tend, excuse me, to live. Makes sense. Now that, is, that doesn't mean go out and gain 50 pounds. Because that kind <laughs> well, I of, think it's more like that natural weight, right? Like if you're just not, right. everyone has like a natural range that they should be in where they're not yes. gorgeous. The overall size, size, I, yeah. And Professor, I'm so sorry about this. The audio was a little spotty when you were ending the story that got you into your explanation. And I didn't get a clear why footprints matter so much. Why footprints matter. That was kind think. of then footprints for the Sasquatch would be, I would that be the strongest piece of evidence that, or like oh. the, the bedrock of your belief? Well, for, yeah, for me personally, it, it stems from, my uh, preoccupation with that type of evidence, my expertise. And so the, you know, things, I end up uh, arguing a point with someone over something which to me, is, it's like arguing that whether the sky is blue or not. Of course it's blue. Can't you see that it's blue? Well, some people apparently can't. Gosh. And so sometimes there are, are subtleties of anatomy which are as obvious to me as the sky being blue and so to make that point sometimes is lost on on your average joe because it would be a leap uh, of faith to notice way the pinky bone goes this way so that means it's blank and you're right. like yeah of course it's this and they're like ah no, no it's just a pinky bone right yeah yeah and that's you know that just comes with experience and and uh uh and training but um but, you know, when, when you have this, this body of data that is so, well, it's just like with this individual. I mean, he, at least he was the, the department chair at this university. At least he was, he was honest with himself to, enough to admit that he did not have the expertise to appreciate the footprints. But, um, but you know, that doesn't release you of the responsibility if you're going to uh, cast a verdict you know, if you're not willing to do the work to understand and evaluate objectively and from an informed position the evidence, then you have no right, no, to, you know, you no longer really have the privilege of, of, of opining about 
that uh, the implications of that evidence. Mm. I mean, you can have your own personal opinions, but you know, you really have no business espousing them. Yeah, trying uh, to argue for them. You're, exactly. you're, you're a higher end internet troll to make it simple, where yeah. you're just shouting <laughs> yeah. out, but you don't really have, you don't go beyond the headline. You don't have more than the talking right. point. Right. And what is it about the footprints that matter so much, or what? What what is what like seals the deal? What can I understand about these footprints? Well, I think I think the the thing that uh, I mean two, two things. There there's the distinction of the functional morphology. These are not simply enlarged facsimiles of a human foot. Um, they are instead distinct from human form in ways that are remarkably consistent and anticipate the, the types of behaviors and, and uh, uh, nature of the substrate encountered by a creature in, in this sort of habitat. What's the um, difference? Like a couple big well, differences. We, we, humans, modern humans, I mean, if you look at us now, our feet function with the assist of shoe wear or without. Uh, we uh, have created for ourselves an environment that has nice, smooth, even surfaces. And uh, so our, uh, uh, the uh, flexibility, the mobility of our, our foot joints is greatly reduced. Now, modern humans have evolved feet that provide a stable platform that is effective for distance walking and running, uh, especially running. We, we are not only anatomically, but physiologically, we are endurance running machines. We, we, whether we show it now individually, <laughs> we are, we are marathon runners. I mean, uh, you know, with the proper training, the proper weight loss and, and so forth, we, we all could be capable of doing that because we've got the physiological, um, partner. <laughs> um whereas Sasquatch, this massive, heavy, uh, animal that is evolved for literally for, for steep, rugged environments. You know, going up up the inclines is is a real challenge for us. Uh, you know, e even uh, endurance athletes. But <clears throat> but this creature has repeatedly been observed navigating extremely steep and difficult terrain in remarkable time, with with tremendous speed that that uh, impresses the observer. Um, it has a foot that is not evolved into a, a rigid platform uh, on the basis of a longitude large, but is a flat foot to distribute weight and a flexible foot that allows it to navigate this rugged, broken terrain more efficiently. How can you tell um, it's a flexible foot based on a footprint? Because it, uh, there, there are features like, uh, namely, the, the most distinctive is the mid-tarsal pressure ridge. This is a ridge which some people mistake as an expression of a, of a medial or longitudinal arch, but it's not. It's, it's a pressure ridge that has occurred as, as the step is taken, the heel comes up, flexing across the transverse tarsal joint, which in the humans would twist and lock into a rigid lever. Okay. Uh, but, but that flexibility then allows for push off through the entire forefoot instead of just the ball of the foot that spares the toes the bending stresses that our feet experience that has 
that have selected for extremely short toes, say by comparison to a chimp or a gorilla, uh, with those longer toes, it has the capability for prehension, not for opposition, but at least for prehension, for grabbing onto things. That's what I was wondering. Like a barefoot shoe. Yeah, and you're using, if you're scaling, you want to get as much torque and grip and friction as possible yeah. to help you go. Yeah. And if you were a larger right. creature, you wouldn't want that flexibility because now you've got all that mass and less surface area, which right. would put a ton of strain. And if I'm in the wilderness, I'm not trying to have my foot broken. If right. I'm, I don't want hairline fractures on my feet right. if that's how I right. get around. Absolutely. Wow. So all those things taken into account, the Sasquatch foot is just elegantly adapted to the very habitat, not the flat open plains uh, for lots of running, but for the climbing up and down and over steep and rugged and broken terrain. How's the uh, scale of the toes compared to ours? So if I look down at my toe and I just proportion it foot to toe, and I'm like, now I'm picturing Sasquatch is more like gorilla-like, where it doesn't, again, like it's not grabbing with that opposable thumb, but is it elongated toes? Are they fatter than human it, toes? They're, they're, they're bigger, more robust than human toes for sure. And they're relatively longer uh, in, in proportion to the overall foot length. Okay. Now, obviously, they're, they're absolutely longer because yeah. the foot is bigger on average. But um, if, if you looked at the relative length of the toes compared to the remainder of the shank of the foot, um, Bigfoot has toes based on my reconstructions from numerous examples of footprints where you can see the points of articulation. They would have a, a toe length that is intermediate between a gorilla and a human. On, on par with an early bipedal hominin like Australopithecus. So um, they've still retained some uh, greater extension uh, and, and grasping ability, but, uh, but, but definitely shorter than even a terrestrial gorilla, which in turn is shorter than a chimpanzee relatively in terms of its digits. You know, and it's, I can't believe I didn't put this together early on. It might've been like 20 minutes into the conversation. I, the, the word missing link came into my mind and yeah. what you're talking about now, like with the DNA, now with the hips, now with the toe evolution as an intermediary, you're like, I'm starting to put those speculative pieces of evidence together to be like, wow, like is that. It, it's there. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> like, right. It explains yeah. a lot because that's never been found. Right. It's always been, isn't that one of the things from archeologists or people who are looking for carcasses or bones is like, how did, if evolution's real, where's the intermediary between monkey yeah. and man? Right. Well, the, the, the notion of a missing link is a bit of a misnomer. Oh. It stems, it stems from, uh, because it's, it's very easily misused. It stems from the notion of what was called the great chain of being, where it was thought that you could array all of nature in a, in a sequence of, of links in this chain with, with one ever more complex than its predecessor. And, and so it was, there was a perception of a gulf between humans and the animal kingdom. In other words, there must be links missing but spanning that gulf. Well, you know, if you're looking for, not, not that, that, that we would expect a direct transition between chimps and humans, but if you're looking for something that fills that intermediate space, you use that word 
intermediate, and that is, is more accurate. Um, the early Australopithecines, like Lucy, uh, they fit the bill. Hmm. I mean, talk about something that's a walking uh, chimpanzee. <laughs> it, you know, from the waist up, they look like a chimp. From the waist down, they look like a human. It, it, it really is a, quote, missing link. But then what happens is as soon as you have a link inserted into that gulf, now you're, you've got two missing links oh, on either right. side. You put another one, and there's missing link here. and a missing. Well, so they're, they're never completely satisfied. So we don't really, in anthropology, don't like to use the, the term oh, missing gotcha. link anymore. Gotcha. But they're, uh, you know, like I use the word, they're a relic hominoid. They are a branch on this bushy tree that has persisted alongside us. Uh, relic population is the one that that uh, preserves primitive traits or is much less just uh, widely distributed than it was in the past. It's held on from a previous time and and, uh, and distribution, and, and I think that's a really good description of what what these are. Uh, not only Sasquatch, but the Yeti and the uh, Russian Almas, the Orang Pendek of Southeast Asia. These are other branches on the tree. They're not all equivalent to Sasquatch, but I mean, in, any more than you would say that a orangutan is equivalent to a gorilla. Well, on one, in one sense, it is. They're great apes, right? They mm -hmm. share some traits in common. And likewise, these other relic hominoids uh, may share some characteristics in common. They are wild men, um, but they represent different evolutionary lines that have come from different points in, in the tree. Um, so so that's that's one way. I like that at. explanation way better than the missing link thing because you're and it's funny because missing link. Okay, if I'm missing one link, you're looking at like a set distance where you just want to get a filler, and then you find evidence. People can say, you know, the link was supposed to be three inches. That piece of evidence is only half an inch. So now we need the two inches over here, and you need a half inch over here. I had not thought of like it like that before. That's um, yeah. it was a much better visual. Right. And so. Would I am I incorrect to be like evolution if you're an evolutionist, the Sasquatch we evolved from the Sasquatch? Is the Sasquatch Sasquatch on the evolutionary train trail with us? Or am I thinking well, about that wrong as well? This uh, yeah, yeah. This this is also some, some baggage that is carried forward. In the nineteen sixties, there were some anthropologists who uh, looking at the niche concept in ecology, thought, well, hmm, the hominin niche is pretty particular. Um, e ecologists had, had uh, employed what was called the principle of competitive exclusion. Now, just think about that, competitive exclusion. Species were excluded by competing with other species so that every uh, habitat, every niche, uh, as it came to be called, could only support one species. Uh, I mean, way back in the 30s, there was a microbiologist, a Russian microbiologist, who discovered that if he grew two species of paramecium, this little microbe, single-celled organism, in separate petri dishes, but with identical medium, they would both be happy campers. They'd thrive. But if he combined the two into one, 
one species would be more successful. It only had to be a little bit more successful, and it would drive the other to extinction. Is success reproduction? Right. Okay. Right. And reproduction and perpetuation of their and gene. I'm, and I'm assuming, life. like, when you put the Petri dish, again, real simple, one sugar cube, one sugar cube, now you merge them, there's still the same amount of resources, two sugar cubes in there for them all to thrive. Or did you limit the resources but increase the population? Well, even even if there were two sugar cubes, the population would still grow to the point where it would become a limiting factor. Uh, okay. And Got so, it. as soon as there's that a limiting sense. factor, one species would would outstrip the other. Okay. And drive it to extinction. So that got that notion was became the one species per niche concept in ecology. The anthropologist took that and said, "Well, hmm, hominin niche." Brains, braininess, bipedalism, and culture. That's a pretty exclusive niche. There can be only one. And so they proposed what was called the single species hypothesis of anthropology, which was that one species gave rise to another, which was supplanted by another, but it was always just one. And so in that case, then you... you you know, you, you, you've probably seen that, that iconic depiction. I was about to say, ep- you must hate that fucking t-shirt. Just that yeah, yeah. Must I, well, it, it, <laughs> it, it was published about the same time as this. And, and to their credit, Time Life, I mean, it's a, it's a uh, de facto, uh, you know, position or, or a method of de- depicting a linear array through time. Right. And if you look at the table above, it shows overlapping spans of species through time, um, but but the image is much more memorable yeah. and has become iconic, and perpetuates this notion of a single file march. So if we have another species, we just we plug it in somewhere in line. You'll know, get in line, when in reality we now know because of the burgeoning fossil record and, and the, the the almost perennial discoveries of new species of, fo- of fossil hominins that it's not a single file it's a bush yeah. a very very bushy tree you know in, in multi-dimensions of space if you want in space and time and so um uh we shouldn't think of of evolution as one species after another yeah. so bigfoot is one branch from that bushy tree that has simply survived alongside us just as gorillas and chimps and orangutans right. have survived their branches that are fairly close but they have their fork you know with us and chimps was about seven five to seven million years ago gorillas a little bit sooner orangutans about eight eight or nine million years ago so where does where does bigfoot fit well depends on what it is we don't really know yet if it's mm-hmm. a close relative, say, of an orangutan, then it may have come off of that orangutan branch maybe six million years ago. If it's an early hominin, like a robust australopithecine, then it may have uh, uh, branched off and persisted alongside humans, uh, you know, uh, two million years ago. And so that that's where we're at. But, but the questions of what is Sasquatch, I think, will only be resolved when we know is Sasquatch. <laughs> you know, once we know it exists, then we can nail down. But 
like just like with the musings about the ecology and the natural history establishing at least a theoretical framework yeah right clearly demonstrates that it's absolutely plausible anybody that says to you it's impossible it, sasquatch could not exist yeah. they don't know what they're talking about mm -hmm. it absolutely could exist the question is how probable that such a creature exists and has evaded our acknowledgement and recognition all this time yeah how many people at google do you think are working on just like the you know google images google map like that are the canopies that thick is that why they haven't discovered oh, it yet <laughs> yeah no I, I it is it is i mean right? you don't see the forest floor yeah and i've had i've had many a, a guy uh present google images that they found which are the shadows of a tree and they see that that figure and that must be a sasquatch i had one that said he'd identified um sasquatch tracks he could actually see a row of tracks well i i said i you know it was over in oregon somewhere and i i passed it off to cliff barrickman i think he actually went out to the site and as i suspected it would be it was it was a cow trail right you yeah. know going from from the pasture to the open range and uh uh yeah no, i mean it's, it, it's possible you never know right but the problem is again a lot in a lot of those cases the only way to really know is if you can cite proof the the uh the observation by actually going there or if you had a series of photos yeah where you can see movement right you can see that you know obviously here it's gone uh, but there it is, and you know now it's gone again. So it only, so it's not a tree tree uh, stump. Security camera footage. So that's something that's kind of interesting too. Why hasn't one of these like wandered into a town? You know, how you see security footage of like the deer stuck in your backyard or the moose that's going down Anchorage. What was that show? Um, Northern, the Alaskan Northern, show. Ex Northern, Northern exposure. exposure. Yeah, the moose yeah, is yeah. just standing in the road, like whatever. So what I start thinking well, of is like cognitively they're aware yeah. enough where they want to be left alone. Sure. Sure. And I think that with that cognition though, with that intelligence also comes a, a perhaps a greater degree of curiosity that isn't driven by necessarily by hunger, but by intellect. And that's why you have reports of individuals peering in through picture windows of cabins, you know, in the middle of the night. I, this one person I uh, described how they stepped out of the side door of the cabin to get an armload of firewood and heard a, a, a noise and turned and there was Sasquatch standing just outside the cast light from this big picture window and it was watching. I mean, it's like watching its own big screen TV right. of what was going on inside, you know? Um, I think, I think those are, uh, those are very real possibilities. Uh, it's like the own Sasquatch got like a free trial of Netflix and he's so excited that he gets that stimulation. And it's sure. like, Oh, let me check this out. You know, but, but hunger, hunger or injury, hunger is a real driving force, you know, obviously for wildlife. And, uh, I mean, that's a problem with, uh, with bears. If they ever figure out that there's a potential for food, yeah. in a dumpster or a garbage can, then, you know, no matter what you do, they'll, they'll come back. And, yeah, right. uh, so I, I can imagine certain scenarios where Bigfoot is just so hungry that it's uh, caution is overcome and, uh, 
but but you know but back to your original point uh they're they're a little more discreet perhaps about it and not going walking down the main street even of a small hamlet but rather they're um uh skulking about cabins and whatnot i mean i having just now said that there uh, immediately a story popped into mind um i don't have the details of but there have been accounts of uh alleged accounts of or i'm sorry there have been accounts of an alleged of alleged <laughs> dumpster diving by sasquatch no yeah yeah out behind uh, you know a strip mall or something that's borders on the edge of a forest and or whatever i mean obviously the, it, there's there's access mm-hmm. it's not walking down main street but um what was but, the evidence uh, yeah. that, like, did, was there a footprint or something? There, there, there was an eyewitness actually saw it, and uh, it was, uh, um, at that point it was outside, but it was standing right behind the dumpster, and he saw the head, face, and shoulders, and the, the eyes glint in the, in the lights of the store. Um, and then there was uh, a skiff of snow, so the, the footprint evidence was quite clear of what it was it wasn't a you know a coyote climbing into the dumpster or whatever but it was uh, a two-legged creature that was very tall you know stood way up higher than one of these large full-size dumpsters and so it was uh, it was interesting so yeah it uh, where do you rank them cognitively or can you rank them cognitively as far as communication problem solving so we have the nest example if right. you're going to attribute that, right? So is that like right. the best evidence? If you say Nest was made by Sasquatch, that's the top evidence of cognitive function? Well, I think I think there's a couple of ways to get at it. And, and that certainly is one, those kinds of behaviors. But, but some of that, some of that, you always have to be careful because instinct, you know, uh, bir- birds are remarkably intelligent, but they oh, build yeah. nests by instinct. They're, they don't go to bird school and learn how to build the nest so that when they when they go off on their own so um, so there, there's that that uh, uh, relationship or that uh, dynamic between instinct and and uh, learned behavior um, when, when I look at um, when I look at, at what they're doing you know if you look at the scale of, of hominin um, archaeological remains tools attributed to various hominins i mean we've pushed back tool making depending on how you define it but let's say modified stone tools used uh, to like even even simple uh, flake tools to to carve meat off of a bone that's been pushed clear back to the australopithecines three million years ago before that was the hallmark of the emergence of homo at about two million Two to two and point five million years ago, um, we see, and, and th- these were creatures that had brains that were, oh, you know, one hundred and fifty cc's bigger than a gorilla or a chimp. Um, so, uh, you know, humans have brains that, on average, are about fifteen hundred cc's. Fifteen hundred. Uh, a chimpanzee has a brain that's about 300, 350 cc's. Some of these early Australopithecines have brains that are about 400 to 500, 550 cc's. And of course, obviously, these are absolute volumes. You have to take into account the body mass and these these uh, 
there was an increase in body size, especially a big jump uh, with the emergence of Homo erectus, and and, and a jump in in the also in the in the relative brain size. Um, that's really where there was a, a tremendous difference. What we see with Sasquatch, no evidence of stone tool use, hmm. only the description of opportunistic uh, uh, flailing of branches or knocking of rocks together or you know, lobbing rocks at things, uh, and generally, you know, underhand or side-handed throwing when it's described. Um, okay. uh, no permanent home basis with the few possible exceptions of, of these, like, uh, transient nest sites no agriculture you don't find sasquatch yeah. farming corn <laughs> no you know no fire use no uh complex social structure really there's no there uh, now arguably some have suggested that there might be language That's right. i don't think it's a, it's a very compelling case and it seems out of sorts with everything else why is that why would language because they've always been found in isolation or spotted no no, no, I, I just don't. I, I think the things that they're interpreting as language is, uh, is just a jibber jabber, <laughs> quite honestly, you know. But, but, but some people have read in um, that they can hear, they can pick out um, a structure and pattern that indicates uh, something more. You know, it's not that beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, obviously, chimpanzees and gorillas have been able, and even orangs. Uh, have been able to master non-articulate speech right. uh, or language, not speech, but language, whether it's with discs or whether it's with signs, um, or not discs, but symbols, symbols right. or signs, hand sign language. If they're able to, to learn that and they just don't have the vocal track that allows them or, or the motor control of the vocal track that allows them to articulate it's there's a lot of space between us and chimps uh and the sasquatch in that intermediate you know if sasquatch could learn to talk you know maybe they are capable maybe that upright posture has caused their larynx mm -hmm. to drop okay. and and selected for uh finer motor control of, of the uh, vocal cords and the pharynx mm -hmm. and the formulation of vowels and who knows I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying that I'm not quite convinced by the evidence that exists today. I'm curious, like rambling. So like a dog barking, would right. you count that as language or would that be more rambling? Well, no. I mean, and, uh, yeah, yes and no. I mean, because obviously <laughs> your dog is capable. I mean, it's not language on par with creating sentences, but it has, it can, it conveys meaning. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, just like birds learn a particular song that is a territorial uh, advertisement and a, and a declaration that I'm species X, right? you know, um, likewise, uh, uh, you know, primates have vocal repertoires. They, they've taken uh, recordings of vocalizations. You know, these monkeys, they have a call for a snake. The threat that's on the ground, huh. and they have a call for the hawk, a threat that's up above. You record those, you've got them identified. You play the one, and all the monkeys look up. You play the other one, and all the monkeys look down. I mean, they understand what the meaning of, of that call right. is, the, or those yeah. two separate calls. And so, you know, again, it, it, it's a spectrum 
of uh, of uh, manifestation of the ability to communicate. Yeah, right. Express meaning. Uh, you know, and and animals are capable of nonverbal communication right. too. You know, your dog can can convey a lot of emotions and and with uh, a tail, simple tail wag. <laughs> yeah, tail wag, position of the ears, <laughs> yeah. the the stare, the eyes. you oh, know, bearing of the teeth, right? Um, all those types of things and and our our roots. I mean, a fascinating book, Darwin. I was fascinated by nonverbal communication uh, as as a, a student, and uh, I thought this would be just a fascinating area of animal behavior to investigate was a little little uh ignorant uh, i guess of of, uh, of the uh, depth of human knowledge but I, I described this to my one of my biology professors and he just kind of laughed and he he wrote that he says go find this book in the library oh. <laughs> it was charles darwin on the expression of emotions by man and animals and he'd written an entire book on the subject and it was it was there was all kinds of interesting research going on about the universal nature of nonverbal human facial expressions mm -hmm. by looking at different cultures around the world. Oh, and, uh, I remember and, this study. Like fear yeah. is kind of universal. Yeah, yeah. sadness is and universal. So showing that they had their roots. These right. expressions have their roots back in our animal ancestry. Really, gotcha. they're not learned culturally, but they're innate. And, you know, even little babies, you know, when the babies first smile, yeah, it's not yeah, just yeah. because of gas, but they actually do <laughs> smile when they're happy. Finally let the fart out. And they're just like, thank God. That was so much. <laughs> yeah. So then to go back to the Bigfoot cognition, you, if a layman's thinking of it, if I'm thinking of it, you would put it on below the, that of like a monkey because oh, of no, the lack no, of no. tool or you'd say above because they figured out how to live yeah. without tools. Well, no, no. Well, see that that that's a whole different twist. Okay. Uh, there, there are those who would say they don't need um, uh, tools because right. they are at one with nature. They have transcended the need for physical support. Yeah, uh, to system. alter their environment. Right. They don't need to alter their environment. Right. And and I I just don't buy that. I mean that's that doesn't make any sense uh, to me, given the other evidence of the types of things that they do do to alter their environment, to, to survive, like any other uh, biological. I mean, for, for that to be true, you have to transcend the physical. I mean, you mm -hmm. have to be, uh, you know, you have to be able to leave your physical body and all the things it needs to do um, to, to survive, I think. And so, uh, uh, no, I don't, uh, I don't buy that uh, given, uh, I mean, well, yeah, it's I'm, hard as I'm talking, I'm talking through this and things are rattling around yeah. in my mind, uh, comparisons, but no, no, I meant to place them somewhere between us and our, our nearest neighbor, namely the chimpanzee. Gotcha. It, now, one other line of inference that I didn't mention that I wanted to touch on was we, we've got a piece of, of film imagery that that some of us are quite confident in the credibility of, which is our really our only photographic image of, of a Bigfoot, which also gives us the opportunity to look at some of the proportions of and, its anatomy. And that's and the one you behind look, you, right? The 59 yeah. seconds, the, the two? Yep. Okay. Patterson-Gimlin film from 1967. And when you look up the at the close-ups, uh, she has this massive face, deep, deep jaws, you know, not in... 
non-human characteristics in the proportions. But a brain, you know, it has no forehead. It goes straight back. So, so very little development of the frontal lobes where higher cognitive uh, centers are located. And a, okay. a, a brain case that is on par with something like a gorilla or an early hominin like robust australopithecine. So, so all those things together, in other words, what you see on the film is in agreement with her lack of tools. She's not carrying a, a club, you know, the, the iconic image of a wild man. Not carrying a club, she's not carrying a a, a spear point or a hand axe or yeah. uh, or anything like well, that. And know? I'm just thinking about it now too. And I, it's probably less risky for me and more risky for you, someone like you, to think aloud on recording. But I I, I enjoy it. I'm thinking to like monkeys. If I I remember this image, a monkey grabs a branch, sticks it in a hole, answer in there, and it's like an ant lollipop, basically, right? But yeah. I don't know. I don't think the monkey like saves the branch, right? Like it's not like us with a silverware drawer and a tool shed where we have one saw. So if you're used to manipulate, if you need a club, why not just grab a thick tree branch, use the club that you need it for, throw it down, and why would you carry it with you? And if you're that big, do you need spears? Do you need weapons to kill? And if you're an omnivore, you could just graze. So you've lost that desire or that need like we need i guess we don't need but it helps us a bunch to have weapons to kill for us to get food exactly no and what you're what you're saying that those are all very good points um and and that's why i I was catching myself in in saying that uh, uh living free of tools just didn't make a whole lot of sense because examples like that were were spontaneously popping in my mind but um first of all it's the chimpanzees that are doing the termite or okay. ant fishing, Thank you. not not the monkeys. We haven't we haven't any documentation yet of them. And you're right, they they don't save, and it wouldn't save well the grass or the stem that they use and they modify in order to get the most effective fishing out of it because it just it wouldn't save. So, but in areas where, for example, the uh, the chimps are eating a lot of these nuts that require cracking and where in a in a jungle where rocks are hard to find and uh, sometimes they rely on a hard stick they actually cache their tools that would make sense so if there's a particular tree they'll hide the rock in the nook in the crook of the of the uh, branches so it's there when they come back that makes sense but if the they environment steal they even steal tools from each other <laughs> there was on one documentary they were showing the one was cracking the nut, and then when he went off to go gather some That's more nuts, Chip watches him, and then he goes over and he grabs the rock, yes. goes over to his anvil, yeah. and starts using it. I forget the name of that documentary, but that was exactly the one. I bet you it's the exact same one I'm thinking of. And it was like the two chimpanzee tribes or families, and then they start like fighting over territory. There was that that occurred. Yeah, there was yeah. that unfortunate example where one particular troop became extremely militaristic yeah, and, right? and literally hunted down members of the other troop, caught any of them alone, and they killed them. Yes. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was, it was awful. It was. Um, but, uh, but somewhat, inter- I mean, awful and at the same time, like, so insightful. Fascinating, you get to yeah, fit, yeah. You know, and you base these theories on it, and you're like, wow, what insight. Right. Um, how come, so in the Hulu documentary with the Patterson, is it Gilmore or Gimlet? 
Gim Gimlin. Gimlin. G I M L I N. So in the Patterson Gilman film, there was one guy might might have been episode two where he was like, "I was the one in the suit. I got paid a hundred bucks." And apparently they're neighbors, which seemed kind of odd to me. <laughs> like the guys who created the film, the neighbor got paid. Like, were you always his neighbor? Um, what do you see in that that makes you confident to be like that is not a quote unquote gorilla suit that right. is being put on? Well, there's a number there are a number of things. But before I go there, I would just say that uh, the character you were talking about, Bob Hieronymus, and his claims are uh, fall absolutely flat. He uh, he is not able to uh, to create a believable scenario uh, yeah, that, that, that is from whole cloth. He, his best piece of evidence in the documentary was like, you can see my wallet. Oh, he yeah. He was like, I had my wallet in my right pocket. And when I take a step, you can see the, and I like, you know, they slow it down. I'm like, I don't, could, could, it, to me, yeah. it just looks like a butt cheek that's muscular, yeah. man. I, I don't see like a square, like, you know, like if you're wearing tight pants or something and your cell phone pops out, you're like, oh, there's, right. there's a cell phone. Oh, you got car keys. I right. was like, nah. And I was like, that was no. your best piece of evidence? That yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it's silly. And it, we could, it's a whole conversation. No, from the, the, there are multiple levels of, of, uh, of uh, evidence from the film that, that impressed me. Again, my expertise as a, a footprint analyst uh, if I had just the footprints that were photographed and documented and filmed at the time um, associated with that, with that site, I would be absolutely convinced of the credibility of it. And then to have on top of that the track maker clearly filmed uh, is, is just all the more remarkable. The anatomy, as, as a student of anatomy, it, uh, it has all the hallmarks of, of the real deal. I mean, it's exactly how we would envision a bipedal hominin species uh, to look. This is one of the one of the fascinating aspects of it, uh, and it's so important too to understand it in terms of the historical context against the backdrop of what was known and what wasn't known in 1967. Now, in 1967, um, one of the scientific viewers was a, man, a doctor named uh, John Napier. A British primatologist, he was the Smithsonian, and he was part of the panel there at the Smithsonian that observed the film and commented on it. And um, he he pointed out that uh, uh, he was quite came down rather negatively. He could not uh, he could not uh, endorse the film, but he he acknowledged there really wasn't anything he could put his finger on except when he looked at that image. He said, you know, from the waist up, it looks like an ape, but from the waist down, it looks like a human. He said, it's it's inconceivable that such a hybrid of structure would exist in nature. But you had just that, mentioned the other, oh, but this predates, and I, again, I'm terrible with the names. You had mentioned, well, maybe like a half hour ago, the one thing that was like half chimp, half human, right? That's right. Exactly. Uh, Lucy. Lucy. Australopithecus afarensis. And you're right. This he, he, he was impressed enough by the topic of Sasquatch that he wrote a book uh, in, in the twilight years of his career. And uh, he just you know, didn't have the precedence. You, you didn't have the precedence to say, oh, it makes sense. I can connect to this finding. That's right. That's right. So see, yeah. his book was published in 1972 when he made this statement. In, uh, in 1975, I think, or six, is when Lucy was discovered just a couple years oh, later. Kicking himself. And, He's kicking and, himself. Yeah. <laughs> 
I know. Well, that's just it. You know, this is how, how Lucy was described to the popular press from the waist up in, in those same words. From the waist up, it looks essentially like a chimp. The waist down, it looks like a human. But that was the very reason that, that Napier rejected the film. You know, so what if he had waited several years before, you know, would, would that discovery have made an impact on his opinion of the film? Has it made an impact on the opinion of anyone else? Well, well, not many, except, you know, uh, present company excluded. But, but uh, things like that, things which in 1967 seemed to cut against the grain mm -hmm. of what was conventional wisdom in anthropology, but now, 50 years later, are absolutely consistent with what we now understand about early hominin evolution. You know, whether it's that funny combination of traits, whether it's the, the very flat, the deep, deep, thick jaws. You know, it was thought that as the face got flat, it was because the jaws were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, then they discovered the robust Australopithecines that evolved in a specialized direction where the lower face got bigger and bigger and bigger so they could process coarse food items. Their canines got small, even though they didn't have tools. It was thought, you know, your, your canines... You know, the reason they have big canines is so they can fight and defend. But if you've got a spear or a knife, you don't need, you don't need big canines, so you might as well get rid of them and lessen the antagonism amongst the males in the, in the, in the tribe, you know. Okay. Well, so here we've got reduced canines in the absence of tools. Well, they had ignored the fact that one of the reasons for that some primates get shorter canines is so their teeth can grind side to side. If you've got interlocking canines, because that's meat, you're you grabbing and ripping meat. Clothes. Either meat or high ridge teeth that, that slice up vegetation right. uh, into smaller bits. But if you get rid of those canines, now your teeth can grind side to side. And, and uh, Gigantopithecus, for example, as well as robust Australopithecines, have this very thick enamel on their molars and premolars and very short, stubby canine teeth. They grind and grind that way. Anyway, so things like that, the, the lack of a divergent big toe, but a flat, flexible foot like we talked about. Right. See, on, on one documentary I was featured on, they interviewed someone, a good friend of mine, um, but he had a different opinion. He goes, why would you lose a big toe, a uh, thumb-like big toe, unless it was to incorporate it into a longitudinal arch? Huh. Well, my argument was no. Why would you have a divergent big toe except to climb in trees? Yeah, because you grab, right? Yeah. So if you're not grabbing, you never, you you don't develop individually a, a divergent big toe, and there's strong selection, just like you know the early right. Australopithecines. There was some mutation that caused the uh, big toe not to diverge in development and to be linked by a by an extension of that tendon or ligament, rather, that holds the heads of the metatarsals together. So, you know, you go down this laundry list, how could Roger Patterson and, and Bob Hieronymus in a costume have gotten all these things right? I mean, what would be the inspiration for a monster, a giant hairy ape monster in 1967? King Kong, right? Yeah. That was the popular silver screen monster. Uh, and it was based on a gorilla with a big jutting face and, and diabolical canines and, and a basically a, an ape-like body form. <clears throat> and yet he came up with something 
very, very different if, if it was hoaxed right. and, and anticipated by decades details of anthropology uh, that now are, are common knowledge. You know, I, I tell people, if I were to undertake, say, to write an introductory text on uh, in a, uh, an anthropology text, human evolution, and I needed an illustration, I wanted a picture to depict what early hominins looked like, especially, you know, robust Australopithecine. I could grab a frame from this film, and if it didn't have the stigma and notoriety already attached to it, use that as an illustration of what an Australopithecine might have looked like, and, uh, you know, get away with it just fine. Today, you know? and that's 67, so you're talking, four, that's over 50 years at this yeah. point. Yeah, we passed the 50-year anniversary. Yeah, because you would think, again, so when you're finding Lucy seven, eight years after the film that would actually give it credibility, you would think within 50 years we'd find the evidence where it'd be like, ah, Bigfoot's foot is actually this if you want to believe in Bigfoot. It would be sure. some sort of variation. So to call your shot that early, is that's like yeah. time, that's time machine predictive. That's Marty McFly. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, very, very much so. So yeah, it's that's, uh, a, that's a great point. You know, it's all that, and the, and the anatomy. You know, you talk about the the wallet in the back pocket. In 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 contradistinction to that, I can take this film and show it to my graduate anatomy students at the end of a semester of full full body dissection, and I'll and I'll show this. You know, we'll talk about determinants of gait, human gait, and I, so I show this as a contrast. I say, first of all. Tell me what's different about the way this thing walks. It doesn't walk like a human. You know, and they pick out the, the various aspects. I say, all right, now start at the top. I want you to, as a, you know, we just go around the, we go around the class sometimes and start at the top and work your way down. And I want you to point out every detail of surface anatomy that you can identify where, you know, you can identify bony features or uh, the attachment of muscles like the trapezius coming way up on the head. Um, you know, things like that. You can see the deltoid. How many muscle groups can you find? You can see the, the lateral and long heads of the triceps. You can see the, the trapezius coming down across the shoulder blade and see, actually see the shoulder blades move as the arms swing in succession. I guess it'd be like that. Um, under the skin, you can hmm. see the shoulder blades. It's not a wallet. The, you know, and that there, for sure, it's a shoulder blade. You can see the erector spinae down on, on either sides of the uh, vertebral column. You can see the blades of the iliac um, uh, uh, bone and the iliac crest and the gluteus maximus coming off of it. Okay, I was gonna you say, can, is that the butt? Like, yeah, yeah. It the butt looks real. Like, yeah. it looked looked powerful. It looked like you would want it to be an NFL linebacker. Well, right. You know, <laughs> it, I've actually got a slide: the biggest NFL football player, and I scaled them, assuming that Patty was just under seven feet tall. I scaled them. Put him side by side. He weighs four hundred and some pounds, and he's pretty thick. Got quite a you know a lot of glutes back there, you know, and uh, thick thighs. But yet he's he's dwarfed next yeah. to Patty. You what? know, it's just uncanny. Is it as simple as lack of genitalia to say female, not male? Well, th that adds to it, but but she has obvious pendulous breasts okay. that suggest that she's a female. And the nature of her footprint is much more uh, narrow and gracile than than the, the males seem to be broader for for their uh, length than uh, the females because they're 
more massive, more heavy, okay. just as you would see between the male and the female. So I was going to say that principle would stay true then. The females would be a bit smaller typically than the males yeah. would be. Okay. Yeah, the, the degree of dimorphism, you know, if we if just use those examples um, uh, of, of, of presumed male footprint and the female footprint in, in a given region, um, suggest a, a degree of dimorphism that's less than things like orangutans or gorillas, uh, but greater than even for human populations. So, uh, I mean, and, and, the, and that, that has some interesting implications too for interpreting their social structure, at least at this point, because the degree of, of sexual dimorphism usually is correlated with the aggressiveness the need to defend territory. So those that males that are defending territory and, and or a harem uh, and have a lot of antagonistic re interactions are often much, much bigger than are their, um, their female counterparts. Um, you know, when you look at the bonobo, the uh, so-called pygmy chimp, they have a matriarchal society. So the males don't fight. The males just, uh, the males actually, they compete with a very different strategy. They compete by outproducing sperm against their neighbors. So a, a bonobo has a testicle that's almost the size of its brain. <laughs> they have a couple of cojones like you would not believe. Like I mean, thankfully, I, I can only be thankful that we do not emulate that strategy. I don't think we'd be marathon runners if that were the case. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's, I had not heard that. That's hilarious. It's, uh, yeah, so it's interesting, you know, where, where gorillas, in contrast, that have, where a male has sole access to his harem. Okay. And they have itty bitty little tiny testicles that aren't even fully descended, you know. Oh, wow. But they get the job done. That's right. all you need. You know, but when you're trying to outcompete your, you know, your buddy over here who has just as much access to the feet, in fact, it's mostly female choice, okay. you know, but, but the females are rather promiscuous. And, and so if you can inseminate more sperm, you up the odds. Right. So there's been strong selection pressure for larger and larger testicles. Quite an okay. investment. So we don't get reports of Sasquatch. See, this is interesting, though. We don't get reports of Sasquatch with gigantic, visible external okay. testicles. So that would suggest that they don't compete with the other males in that fashion. It, it actually goes well with the orangutan model, where the female, it's female choice. The, the, the males dominate a, a real estate not the females, they dominate an area of real estate, and then the females come looking for him when when they're ready because they want the father of their children to be the biggest, baddest guy on the block. Right, for the protection and, aspect uh, of that. And so, you know, he, small testicles will get the job done. <laughs> so with Sasquatch, that, that may well be. Now, there have been a couple of people who have drawn... Uh, uh, Well-endowed? Depictions, yeah, of what they, <laughs> what they claim to have seen, and they are... Yeah, fully endowed. They, you know, no David statues. No. I was about to say. <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't cover it with a fig leaf, uh, and yet uh, I don't. Uh, uh, you know, that's not a common observation of of, uh, of witnesses. Uh, it would, uh, you know, the male genitalia are pretty nondescript. 
uh, in most instances. Uh, unless so, unless he's not manscaping, right? Now we've just gone totally right. off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> but right, like unless he's not. Professor, I've, I can't, is there something we haven't gotten into? I don't want to, you've been so gracious to give me over two and a half hours at this point. Oh, really? That yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's been so enjoyable. I don't, I know you had an engagement because you were nice enough to reschedule for me. You have something going yeah. on later. Is there right. something we haven't got into that you want to in the long form? No, I think, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's so many, you know, you can write a book about the subject, but. I, I think the, the, the real take-home message is uh, one, one that I've been trying to get across is that if you're serious about this subject, if you really want to evaluate uh, the, the evidence, you really need to take, take the whole concept within its appropriate context. You know, these examples of juxtaposing interpretations of the Patterson-Gimlin film against the historical backdrop in which statements were made, for example. Yeah, context uh, is there. I had no idea the context is everything when you get discredited, yeah. but then you think about, wow, three years later, that's brand right. new to me. That's awesome. So so that kind of exercise and then combined with our, our sort of uh, drawing inferences based on a theoretical context that show that it is indeed plausible and, and that uh, many of the objections really are baseless. Uh, and so they're, they're especially objections about missing evidence. Yeah. And so it behooves them to engage the evidence at hand unless you can eliminate, you know, the evidence. You can't, you can't justify your, uh, your reticence. And, and again, let me, let me emphasize, I'm not trying to, um, to uh, accumulate people. converts. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're not, you're not a cult. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not that at all. But uh, but it's it's all about the evidence. And does the evidence justify further investigation? You know, have I have I wasted 28 years, or am I am I, am I pushing Adding an idea that that will one day have its day in court and and uh, be. Uh, be uh, either vindicated or falsified. I mean, it's hard to prove something doesn't exist, but and I think eventually it will be vindicated. And, and uh, but the the context at, uh, of the theoretical context and the historical, scientific and scientific context, all are really important to appreciate the significance and the impact and implications of this evidence. And uh, sure. it's important to keep that in mind. And Professor, I completely forgot to ask, and I don't even know if it's a number you would know, but footprint-wise, do you have like a thousand of these in some sort of storage locker, or how many have you seen from different places where you say it's just too many to be happenstance? Well, the the number of casts I have in my collection, my research collection, is in excess of 300 now. Oh, wow. Plus, there are hundreds of additional photographs of footprints that were not cast for lack of materials or, or proper conditions. And how many sites are we talking about? Like 300 from one site? Or are you oh, talking no, 300 no. sites with 300 well, casts? No, it, there, there are, on rare occasions, there's the good fortune to have multiple footprints in a trackway oh, wow. at one site. So, for example, my first experience in southeastern Washington, there were 35, 45 tracks. I cast seven of them. Uh, and there are a few other examples where a number of footprints in, 
in succession were, were cast. But for the most part, it represents, uh, you know, uh, examples from all over the country, from the continent. And, and my collection also, <clears throat> excuse me, has examples of some of these other relic hominoids like the orang pendek and and uh, the russian almas the uh, yowie in australia supposedly yowie and uh, and so on chinese yaren etc and i also I, I must give credit where credit is due um due to his uh, notoriety on the finding bigfoot cliff barrickman has really become a lightning rod too for um cast material you know he shares a uh, a, a very uh, pragmatic objective uh, interest in the footprint evidence as well and he's always been extremely gracious in exchanging materials so uh, uh, he has uh, shared a great deal of those things that have come to his attention to which i'm i'm indebted but um, yeah it, uh, it it's impressive to yeah. see the uh, the remarkable uh, continuity, but there, you know, the quality of casts, the quality of, or I should say, the quality of of, of record of footprint, um, you know, it's not just an either or. Mm -hmm. It's the, it, 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 there's so much depends on the conditions and the circumstances and the discovery and the documentation. The quality varies uh, a lot, and so. Um, while there is a remarkably consistent pattern that emerges, there's a lot of variation um, that mo is mostly artifactual. But there's, you know, there's those tracks that are a little bit difficult to interpret because of their incompleteness or their distortion or, gotcha. or whatever. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk about a couple hundred um, Bigfoot, possibly, like when you think of the cast, then originally you're like, oh, there's like one footprint. But it's not. If, if you got five Bigfoot, oh. you would have some variation size, length, width, impression, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. and then especially with the two species, you're like, oh, okay. You know, and, and there's little footprints, too. I was about to we, say, we, I, I didn't want to keep going, but yeah. In, infants that probably are just barely walking, just barely ambulatory, that are only about, oh, two and a half, three inches long, but they're not human. I mean, they're clearly not human, and they're very broad, massive heel. And, and then right on up the scale to, like I said, the biggest one I have is 19 inches. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I'm extremely skeptical of uh, claims of, you know, 22, 24-inch footprints. I just, it's not, I mean, you get to a point where the types of, of, uh, of dysfunction and pathology that we were discussing with, with very big humans Right. Starts to come into play with Sasquatch, the Sasquatch morphotype that is appropriate for its size range has extremes, and if you exceed those, uh, then you're talking about the same kinds of problems. Right? Yeah, uh, it'd be like Cyclops or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so these 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 suggestions that there's 12, 15 foot giants walking around the forest. I just I don't buy it. I don't see the evidence for it, and and I can't I can't make a satisfactory theoretical context that would accommodate based on biomechanics uh, such a such a being. Yeah, because you wouldn't survive, right? If you can't move, right. you wouldn't be able to survive because yeah. you, you don't Unless have you start... Uber Eats dropping food yeah. onto you. Right. Yeah, you'd have to have have such dramatic changes in your physiology and 
and your uh, you know your anatomy and skeletal structure that you're a different species. Awesome. You know, you're not the same thing anymore. Let me. I, I promise this will be the last question. <laughs> I'm so curious though, baby Bigfoot. I just thought about this. Like I've seen videos of horse giraffe. They're born and like immediately can walk and go. And I don't know if that's well, not immediately, but it's it's very very yeah. soon they can move around. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's because you got four. You're a quadped, right? Is that what they would be called? Where you have four places to balance you. Yeah. Do you have well, a, it, it, it depends on the again on the on the natural history of, of the species. So prey items that can't afford to, to not be um, uh, mobile immediately and move with the herd. Okay. Um, they 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 are very very precocious. But but the predators, we look at the quadrupedal cats or dogs. I mean, cats are born with their eyes still sealed shut. Oh, that's a good point. You know? So. Um, Apes, on the other hand, are uh, they're more in that uh, what, what we call altricial. They're more dependent on their parents, uh, just like so. So you know, gorillas and chimps. Basically, they they have this remarkable ability to grab on, right? Um, and and they have even humans. If you, it's interesting experiment. If you have a newborn baby <laughs> and you put your finger in the palm of their hand, yeah. they'll clamp on. You can lift them up off of the table, huh. and they'll hang by their hands. But they lose that very quickly. Within a couple of days, they can't do that anymore. Because they don't need it. They don't need it. Because you, why would they need it? Humans yeah. don't have any hair to grip. Right. You know. I mean, there was a period we have clothing now, but but there was a period when we didn't, and so humans would have to hold on to the baby. And uh, but a gorilla uh, can just. You know, bring that baby up. You sometimes they have to support it for a while, right. but then very quickly the gorilla, with not only the hands but the feet as well, yes. can grab on and hold on. And pretty soon they're riding up on the back, jockey style. Uh-huh. And uh, so I, I would think, think again, as with all these questions, we don't know for certain, but it makes perfect sense to kind of consider Bigfoot within the brackets established by the known members of the group. It's almost certainly a member of. Hominoidia, and and so if we look at the hair-covered apes, the infants very very quickly are capable of holding on by themselves, and you know pretty soon they're they're very aware so of their surroundings. And, what was the smallest baby foot size-wise that you found that you were attributing? It, it probably it close to about th- three inches. Let me see if I use my little huh. scale here. About about three inches. Um, my a good friend of mine, John Mainzinski, witnessed a, a line of tracks that was clearly a female with an infant. The infant was probably only about four or five inches long. Female was, uh, you know, fourteen inches. And what was interesting, he said, it was the behavior you could read, and that is the females walking along the Forest Service Road. This is an, is an area where the roads are very uh, primitive, and they're just graded dirt trackways. And so uh, the prints were visible. The little one would wander away from mom, and it was investigating this anthill over here, <laughs> this rock log over here. And then the road got steep, some switchbacks, you know, and suddenly the, the little tracks converged on mom's tracks and disappeared. Oh. Probably hiked up onto mom for a ride until they got to the top of the grade, right. and then they reappeared up on the flat. And off they went, you know, doing their thing. So, you know, it's really 
who would concoct something like that? Yeah. And, and this observer, I trust implicitly. John is a, a, a seasoned wildlife uh, uh, student uh, or researcher and, and uh, spends inordinate amount of time in the field on his own, uh, is a keen, keen observer of detail. He passes the background check. Has the credentials. He's certified. He passes the background check. It's as, as reliable as if I was there myself to observe it. So. Professor, I really can't thank you so much for answering my cold email, for coming on. I We didn't get to know a ton about you, but we got to know a ton about what you spent 28 years building sure. up and laying a foundation to explore, man. I, I don't know if I'm geeky enough to appreciate it, but I can tell like it's it just the way you can explain so quickly. It, 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 it's there. The, the, a ton of evidence oh, yeah. and a ton of work is there. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I really had fun listening to it. I really did. Good. Good. Well, I hope, it, hope it'll be a benefit to others. Awesome. Thank you so much and enjoy whatever function you're going to. Have a couple extra right. for me. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Bye, sir. Thanks to Dr. Jeff for giving up so much of his time to educate us all and to answer my basic, basic questions. When dudes can just off the cuff answer with multi-syllable scientific names of different things, the fact that I have to use things to describe what he uses scientific names for just proves his intelligence. Dr. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you to Andre Psyche. For supporting the Getting to Know You pod, search up Andre Psyche on social media and give him a follow just for the fuck of it. If you have not already, please friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. The word of the pod, word of the pod alert, is Sasquatch Scat. Sasquatch Scat is the word of the pod. Post that word on any of our social media or tag the getting to know you pod when you use it on yours to get a shout out on our very next podcast don't forget subscribe rate and review the getting to know you pod on apple spotify or your preferred podcast platform you can also go to our patreon to support the pod for as little as two dollars a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests and finally you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. How can you make it happen, Captain? Jazz message us. Arrivederci.